Any more good ideas, Jim? Yes, I have. One more, and it depends on the lieutenant's loyalty. If she fails us, we better get used to herding goats. Bridge to all decks. It's time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Nance. I'm Steve Morris, and I was fascinated by Greek mythology as a kid, so I am very excited about talking about today's episode. Today's episode is literally Star Trek's version of a Greek tragedy. It is Who Mourns for Adonais, an episode that I always liked for a whole lot of reasons, but I haven't liked it this much because... (laughs) Rewatching it, I've discovered so many things that that we have brought to the table with with Enterprise incidents, and I, I'm I'm guessing that you have a lot to say about this episode, Steve. Um, I do, and it's and you know it's getting redundant at this point, but same here. I watched it again. I was like, oh my god, there's so much here, which I had <laughs> never thought about before. Well, well, who more fraternize? I, I think uh, it, it's it's a uh, the fourth episode produced for season two. It was the thirty fourth overall episode to film, which was done over seven days between May 31st and June 8th, 1967. It was the second episode to air during Star Trek's second season on September 22nd, 1967. So it was the 31st episode to air overall. Teleplay was written by Gilbert Ralston. He is a writer, is a former newspaper man from Ireland. On TV, he wrote for shows like Naked City, Ben Casey, and Gentle Ben. And on film, he wrote uh, Kona Coast, Willard, and Ben in the early 70s. The episode was directed by Mark Daniels. And as you can imagine, especially when you look at the production design, the production values for this episode... Went over budget. It went over budget. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, of course it did. Uh, You're talking about a budget of uh, 185,000. This one went over budget by $18,623. The total cost for Who Mourns for Adonize was $203,623. The score, you gotta love the score for this episode. It's a mostly complete score. They did use some music cues here and there for prior episodes, but composed by Fred Steiner. It was his sixth score for Star Trek, and the score was recorded on July 12, 1967. The visual effects for this episode, and there are a lot of them, you have the effect of the hand holding the Enterprise, the effect of the Thunderbolts right. uh, from Apollo, and of course, uh, the amazing effects of the Enterprise firing on Apollo's temple to- towards the end of right. the episode. Spoiler alert. But uh, I-, I just think overall, I've always felt that Who Mourns for Adonis is a really outstanding top-tier episode. So when we were talking about the prior episode, Steve, Friday's Child, you know, my discovery of that episode, or one of them, was that there was a there actually was uh, a metaphor for that episode about, you know, maybe Vietnam, um, but it, it was an idea that was not explored. Right. But the ideas in this episode are explored in such a great deal in a way that it really is thought-provoking in the best possible sense of what makes Star Trek so thought-provoking. What if the Greek gods were aliens from another planet? But great performances here, especially from guest star Michael Forrest as Apollo, the range that he shows in this episode. The costume design by William Ware, Bill Tice. Again, the score by uh, Fred Steiner. But also uh, just 
rewatching this episode, I had an epiphany about Apollo that I will get to. But when you were growing up, Steve, when you were young, little Steve Morris, what did you think of Kumar's Fatter Nice? Nice? I always liked it. Like I said, I really did love Greek myths. I love the Arthurian legends. I read that stuff all the time. And so this was one that fit right in. I do have an embarrassing story to tell you. Okay. <laughs> which is, I, I don't know if I've mentioned it to you before, but I'm a little bit dyslexic. Not severely so, but letters do flop around on me. And so I did struggle with spelling and things like that. And one of the, which I didn't know when I was a kid, but one of the um, techniques that dyslexics use to compensate is that sometimes they is that if you can't read the letters in the middle of the word, but you can see the shape of the whole word. So you see like, oh, I see the first letter and the last letter and, and I, and, and you use context clues. I didn't know that I was doing this when I was reading as a kid. I only found it out much later, but use context clues to figure out, well, what would that word be? Um, and so for years I saw the title of this show and it literally makes no sense. Adonai, or Adonai, that's a Jewish word. That's For Jewish that. God, which mm-hmm. I grew up with. I grew up with hearing the prayer and hearing that word. But this, there's nothing related to Judaism whatsoever in this episode. And that word made no sense to me. And so I didn't read it as Adonai. What did you read it as? Adonis. That's very interesting. Because that's a Greek god. It has mostly the same letters. It starts with an A and ends with an S. And so I just, you know, the title would come up. I go, oh, it's who mourns for Adonis, which also didn't make any sense at all, by the way, because this isn't Adonis, it's Apollo. (laughs) But like, literally, I think I was in college when I heard someone actually say the name out loud. And like, I I know there are dyslexics who have this experience many times. and, and, And people who aren't dyslexic, too, where you read a word over and over again, never heard it. And then realized that you were reading something completely different. So until college, I thought this was Who Mourns for Adonis. Steve, I have an equally embarrassing story for you for a different reason. Okay. Okay, the story is that, that I, too, for many, many, many years, even growing into adulthood, saw the episode title and read it in my head and even said it out loud in conversation with my Star Trek friends as Who Mourns for Adonis. Who mourns for Adonis? That's you just the too. way it looked. I I always refer to it as who mourns for Adonis. And my friends never corrected me. They they said the same thing. It was always who mourns for Adonis. I was corrected on the title. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for this? Yes. By Apollo himself. Oh, my God. Michael Forrest. Wow. I was hosting a Star Trek convention in the early 90s. Uh, it, Burbank, uh, here in L.A. Yeah. And Michael Forrest was one of the guests. So when I, when I introduced him to take the stage, ladies and gentlemen, uh, so excited to announce uh, uh, one of the greatest uh, guest stars to grace the Star Trek stage, Michael Forrest from Who Mourns for Adonis. Applause, everybody. Michael Forrest takes the stage. He takes the mic. Thank you, thank you. Everybody's applauding for him. He turns to me. He goes, by the way, the title is Who Mourns for Adonis. So not only was I corrected by Apollo himself, I was corrected by Apollo in front of a group of Star Trek fans. So, so I thought I was sharing an embarrassing story. Your story is way better. I was like, whoa, okay. Uh, uh, the Greek god Apollo just corrected me. I felt like I was, I felt like I was big as Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy, you know, after Apollo grew in uh. this episode. But... You know All right. what? All right. That is now I have a question. So yeah. we put Facebook questions out. Here's my question. How many people 
mispronounced or misread the title of this show like Scott and I apparently did. Yeah. Who who else who else refer to it as Who Mourns for Adonis? Let us know. And full disclosure, you know, the episode Gangsters of Triskelion. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up well into adulthood, I saw that as Gangsters of Trixalon. <laughs> well that the, the, I mean, but this happens all the time. Like, there's in the Legion of Superheroes, there's Chameleon Boy. Now, Chameleon is spelled with a ch, so that was Chamelon Boy mm. to me. I mean, there's so <laughs> many. Like, like the, the English language is so terrible, and we could do literally whole podcasts on all the things that's wrong with English spelling. But for a little dyslexic kid, it was really rough for me growing up. Well, I'm glad that we, you know, cleared the air on our yeah. embarrassing stories about who was for Adonis. <laughs> uh, but the Gene Roddenberry actually came up with the concept. Uh, uh, in December of 1966, and at that time, Roddenberry had referred to this as Olympus Revisited. So when Gilbert Ralston came on to do his initial story outline on March 8, 1967, he changed the title to Last of the Gods. Ralston wrote a first draft teleplay dated April 7, 1967, in which he finally referred to the episode as Who Mourns for Adonis. Gene Kuhn wrote a second script polish dated May 15th. Dorothy Fontana did a rewrite, a revised final draft teleplay on May 26th. And Gene Roddenberry did a script polish, a second revised final draft teleplay on May 29th. Like I mentioned, this is Fred Steiner's sixth musical score for Star Trek after the Corbomite Maneuver, Mud's Women, Charlie X, Balance of Terror, and What Are Little Girls Made Of? Uh, uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, and, and you could see that the best of the best really had their hand. In addition to Ralston, uh, you had Gene Kuhn, Dorothy Fontana, and Roddenberry himself all taking passes at this teleplay. Wow. Would you like to know some of the things going on in the world when this was filmed? Yes, would love to hear it. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, there was some heavy stuff that we were building up to that is still going to go on. We're certainly going to get into. But first, a lighter item. The very first uh, franchise of McDonald's to open up outside the U.S. opened on June 1st in Richmond, British Columbia. Did you ever see the movie The Founder? I did. With uh, Michael Keaton? Yes. That is excellent. I think, so I mixed, I, I think the first half of the movie, in particular meeting the McDonald's brothers and seeing the whole way they worked it all out. I loved. And then the second half of the movie is still really good, but it's kind of sad and, yeah. and upsetting, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, but but yes, it is a good it's a good movie. The Founder, for those of you who've never seen The Founder, highly, highly recommend it. My pitch about The Founder, which mm. is a, the McDonald's story and Ray Kroc, uh Roy Roy? Ray. Ray. Roy. No, I don't remember. Ray, okay. I think. I think uh, it's Ray. So so my, my pitch for the founder is that it's the social network with fast food. Sure. Because that's exactly what it is. Yeah, totally. Um, so on uh, on the 2nd of June, 1967, an American F-105 was attacking a North Vietnamese port when it accidentally hit a Soviet diesel, killing a Soviet sailor, a merchant sailor. And at first the U.S. denied it, but then it, it admitted to it 16 days later, uh, which is pretty scary. Um, there was rioting on in Boston. And this, by the way, we're going to hear this a lot of race riots throughout uh, the United States, and Boston certainly had some. It was definitely a rough year. And then on the same day, on June 2nd, a uh, Israeli Defense Force patrol battled with four Syrian uh, soldiers on the Syrian border. One Syrian and two Israelis were killed. This is the first deaths in what is going to become called the Six Days War. Mm-hmm. And that's where we are right now. And I have 
an admission to make. What's that? Another one, more serious than the uh, than who mourns for Adonis. <laughs> so it's something we've been talking about really relates to Star Trek throughout this whole series is how one of the things that has to happen for our characters is that you look in the world in a certain frame and then that has to shift when you get new information. So we see that in Devil in the Dark. We see that in Errand of Mercy. We see that in Metamorphosis, which mm. we just did. There's that ha- That happens a lot. And I just had one. What's that? So I grew up. Uh, I'm Jewish. You were Jewish. I don't know if you had this experience, but I went to classes at the temple. And as a little kid, we did Jewish cooking and Jewish music and dance. And as I got a little bit older in fourth grade and fifth grade, it was more about history and about, you know, it was biblical history. But it was also this is where I met a Holocaust survivor for the first time. This is where I first Mm -hmm. saw films of the Holocaust. And then this was also where I first learned about the state of Israel. And the narrative I was taught at that time was a very unsurprisingly pro-Israel Israel's this scrappy nation that is has all surrounded by enemies and is defending themselves bravely and, and all that's true and it's also more complicated as you would imagine and even yes. I remember in 6th grade I mean you know me I was the same in 6th grade 6th grade is when I started to really question and push back and go wait a minute well what about the other side and there are certain things about the way that story was framed for me that stuck and one of the framings was that Israel fought to defend themselves Right. They didn't attack. If if the neighbors wanted to be peaceful, they were going to be peaceful. Right. Okay. That's not exactly right. Huh. And even though I've learned, I've studied Israel and the Palestinian problem, I don't want to get into it at all. It's this not what's appropriate for this show. It is exceptionally complicated. That's all I'll say about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is on June 5th, this is the beginning of the Six-Day War, Israel launched a surprise preemptive strike on Egypt Shortly after dawn at 7 a.m., they launched 183 fighter planes. By 7.30, all but 12 of Israeli fighters were in the air. At 7.48, they turned south towards Egypt. A radar operator in Jordan saw them, and he put out the code word in Arabic to say there's an attack coming. The code word was inab, which means grape in Arabic. Egypt had changed the code words the day before, so they didn't react. Mm-hmm. Um, attacks began simultaneously on 10 Egyptian air bases. More than half of their fleet, more than half their air force was destroyed while sitting on the ground. This is like Pearl Harbor. And, and the destruction was so complete that even the airplanes that were left really couldn't take off. Wow. Huh. So I didn't know that, even though I knew a lot about the Six-Day War and I knew the results of the Six-Day War. But I didn't know that the first strike is Israel's. And this is like, and it's not, I will say it again, Israel and the Arab nations around it and the Palestinians, these are unbelievably complicated problems. 100%. Yes. And yet, and even though I knew that, and even though I've spent a lot of time pushing back on the narrative that I was raised with, I still, that framing still had, was in my head. And I didn't know this one fact that they attacked first. When, whenever we discussed current events while these episodes were filmed, you know, I've commented like, oh, can you imagine like, you know, you're driving to work in the morning, going to uh, the Desilu lot, stage nine, yeah. and you're listening to your radio, and you're hearing about all these events. Well, Michael Forrest, while being interviewed for Mark Cushman's book, These Are the Voyages, mm. said that while they were filming Who Mourns for Adonais, uh, a couple of people had their transistor radios by their side, and they were all checking in with the radio yeah. while the Six Day War was going on, because that was going on while this episode was being filmed. So, uh, you know, that is definitely something where we know for sure that because we're hearing it from uh, from Michael Forrest, that they were they were absolutely 
following this as it was happening during the filming of Who Mourns for Adonis. Adonis. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and our two two leads are Jewish. I mean, so of course they would be listening. I'm sure lots of the other people working on the show were Jewish as well. Mm -hmm. So right at this moment, they attack Egypt, and then they call up the King King Hussein of Jordan and say, listen, we don't want to have a fight with you, so this is your chance. Let's just have a you know, agree not to attack each other. And Jordan responds with shooting shells across the Israeli border into Israel. And now the Six-Day War is really on. On the same day, Moscow calls up Washington. It is the very first use of the hotline, the red phone, the red line between Washington and Moscow ever since it was created in 1963 after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And they say, stop supporting Israel. That's, that's the Soviet Union's message to the United States. Mm. Put pressure on them to have a ceasefire. On June 6th, Israeli forces capture the rest of Jerusalem, the east side of the city. They don't use any artillery because they don't want to hit any of the religious buildings. Sure, yeah. Nasser, the president of Egypt, gets in a plane to survey the Sinai and the battlefield and almost gets shot down. Wow. Like there's a, literally an Israeli fighter jet that's strafing it that just misses it. They didn't know that Nasser was on board. All of the Arab oil exporting nations, they halt all shipments of oil to the U.S., to the U.K. because of their support for Israel, and they closed the Suez Canal. Like, this is as serious to the world as anything you could possibly imagine. Absolutely. Jerusalem is fully liberated on June 7th, and uh, Defense Minister Moshe Dayan says, we have reunited the torn city, the capital of Israel. We have returned this most sacred shrine, never depart from it again. And Jewish worshippers visited the Wailing Walls for the wall for the first time since 1948. Mm. Arab houses around the wall were demolished to make room for Israeli worshippers. On uh, at noon, Israel and Jordan signed a ceasefire. That's how fast this is. So a couple days ago, they said, "Hey, let's not fight each other." Jordan attacked them. A couple days later, ceasefire. On June 8th, 34 U.S. Navy sailors were killed when Israel mistakenly attacked them in the Med. And then, on June 8th, Egypt agreed to a ceasefire. After Israel Israel had defeated all their forces in Sinai, and not only that, they blocked their escape. So they couldn't get back to Egypt. And so Egypt agreed to a ceasefire. And the Soviet Union has now put its navy in the Mediterranean, and they're moving in and out of U.S. ships. This is all really, really, really scary. Yeah, it sure is. So the Soviet Union has always had close contacts with the nation of Syria. In fact, Russia still has close contacts in Syria, which we've heard about in all the trouble that's going on in the Middle East right now. And they want to support Syria against Israeli attacks. So they tell the Syrian government, we are going to drop our own paratroopers onto the Israeli border to help defend Syria. And that is on June 8th. And we're going to have to wait until next week to find out what happens. We'll have to wait till we do our deep dive on a mock time to figure yep. out what happens. Unbelievable. Wow. What, what a week. Yeah. That is, that yep. is uh, you know, the, the last few episodes we did, uh, Metamorphosis and Friday's Child, especially Friday's Child, you know, we, we were leading up to this. So to hear that all this was happening to, during the, the making yep. of this episode and, and, you know, they still have to film like, like it's, you know, they got to do their jobs. It's really... Uh, incredible the, to put the making of this episode into the context of the times and you're talking 1967 you're talking about civil rights in vietnam and the cold war uh and 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 the, the six-day war unbelievable um 
would you like to get into the show? Not a moment too soon, my yeah. friend. <laughs> well, this is, you know what's funny? We talked about it. It's like, man, Star Trek's a relief. It sure is. It yeah. really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we start a teaser and we meet a new lieutenant. Here's the report on Pollux 5, Captain. Lieutenant Carolyn Palamas. Uh, she is played by Leslie Parrish. She was a Golden Globe nominee for Most Promising Newcomer for the 1963 movie for Love or Money. On TV, she was on shows like uh, Perry Mason, The Wild Wild West, Batman, The Lieutenant, and Mannix. And I'm going to come back to her performance in Mannix a little bit later on. Uh, On film, she was in movies like Lil Abner and the classic film The Manchurian Candidate. But Hmm. when when we see her... We are on the bridge. This is day one of filming for Who Moans for Adonais. And uh, cinematographer Jerry Finnerman was out sick for two days. So if you pay close attention to the lighting on the bridge, it is a little different. Hmm. Uh, It's it's very – it's much more lit. Right. Like, like fit then more so than Finnerman, you know, with his with his use of the different colors and the shadows. And uh, but uh, the cinematographer filling in for Jerry Finnerman on those two days, his name is Arch Dalzell, and he was the cinematographer on 1960s Little Shop of Horrors. He took hmm. uh, Jerry Finnerman's place for a couple of days. Um, wow, the original Little Shop of Horrors. The original, yes. <laughs> is, is Jack Nicholson in that? Yes, he is. I think, yeah, I thought he was. Um, and what we find out is we're exploring what sounds like a pretty boring area of space. One of the planets is Pollux Four, and obviously that's connected to Castor and Pollux, the the mythological twins. Uh huh. There you go. A little bit of a hint. A uh, little bit of a hint. <laughs> um, and who is there talking to Lieutenant Palamas? But Scotty. Well, I was up all night working on this report, sir. Well, in that case, there's nothing like a wee bit of coffee to get you back in shape. Join me, Carolyn. Scotty kind of has a thing for Palamas, doesn't he? Kirk and McCoy are giving him a little shade. They're kind of making some jokes about it. Could you get that excited over a cup of coffee? Even from here, I can tell his pulse rate's up. <laughs> and I love Scotty's... Gentlemen. McCoy is expressing some concern. And, you know, Kirk Sorman says... Uh, Why, well, Scotty's a good man. And he thinks he's the right man for her. But I'm not sure she thinks he's the right man. So, basically, McCoy tells Kirk... You know what? She's just not that into him. <laughs> That's exactly what happens. And then we get a totally sexist <laughs> yeah. thing. And it's just, it, it's so funny when the kind of just, this is how they looked at the world reveals. Again, it's a different framing because Kirk says. I like to think of it not so much as losing an officer as gaining. Actually, I'm losing an officer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because but, women but, get married. They're not going to continue on, on their careers. But McCoy initiates that part of the conversation mm-hmm. when he says, she's a woman. All woman. One day she'll find the right man and leave the service. Uh, and I just was rewatching this episode, and I've heard that line a million times when I've watched it over the right. decades. And I didn't think much of it, but of course now I do, especially yeah. in today's day and age. I do, and I go, "Why does she have to leave the service?" You know, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it, it is a very very dated comment, but it is a reflection of the times in which the episode was made. So you know, so so there you go with that. But the thing is, is that I, I have a question before, before I just it yeah. just occurred to me, and maybe you know the answer to it, and I'm sure that somebody listening knows the answer to it. What is the highest-ranking female officer in the original series? Oh, that is a great question. The highest-ranking female officer. So you got to take Commissioner Hedford from Metamorphosis because she's not an she's officer. She's not an officer. Uh, let's see. It's got to be, well, uh, 
Uhura. She's a lieutenant. She's a lieutenant. We see, and so is Palamas. We so see several Palamas. lieutenants. Yeah, uh, but but the reason I say Uhura is because of this, because in the animated series episode, right. she takes over the bridge. The Lorelei signal. Yeah. She takes command of the Enterprise, and that's something that that even someone like Palamas, Lieutenant Marla MacGyver's. I think most of the lieutenants that we've seen, you know, not including like the Yeoman, like the like Rand and all the other Yeoman mm-hmm. fill-ins after Rand right. uh, was written out of the show. But uh, I would say it's got to be Uhura because because she can actually take command. And she did actually take command of the Enterprise in an episode that is canon. And we don't see any commanders or commodores or admirals. Not not female. Not yeah. in the original series. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, but you sure will in all the other we, we, shows. So we get to the other ones. <laughs> but in early versions, in earlier mm. versions of the story, Lieutenant Palamas, she had been involved with another crew member named Sam Holloway. Uh, and that character died. So in the original version of the teaser, the episode opened with the funeral mm. of this character, Sam Holloway. And Scotty, as it turns out, was like the rebound guy oh. for Lieutenant Palamas. I'm glad we didn't do that. Yeah, I'm glad we did not go there. But what I like about this part of the second season, the beginning of the second season... And I've said this many times that just, to, you know, you're working with a producer like Gene Kuhn. You're working with revolving directors like Mark Daniels and Joseph Pevney and, of course, Ralph Sinetsky, you know, directors who really, really knew Star Trek, knew the rhythms. The characters knew who they were, Shatner, Nimoy, D. Kelly. And I, the rhythm, the camaraderie, the, the chemistry between everybody is very, very evident in an episode that I feel like is not just about the big three. It is a true acting ensemble for every major character all seven, the big seven from the original series. Agreed. Um, and we're heading into standard orbit. And who is sitting at the navigator seat but Chekhov? Is this his first time there? This is Chekhov's first time in the navigator seat. He's not taking the science station like he did in Cat's Paw or in the Friday's Child. He's actually sitting in the navigator's chair, so he has been promoted. And what I like about this episode, Steve, and, and this is something that one of the many things, as we'll get into, that I discovered or that I realized, rather, watching Who Morts Out or Nice, you know, the... Mission of the Enterprise is to explore strange new worlds, seek out new life and new civilizations. But how many times did they actually do that? If you look at the episodes, how many times were they really out in deep space where no one had gone before, really exploring, not transferring vital materials to another planet, Mm -hmm. not responding to a distress call, not going to a space station, you know, like really exploring, doing what their actual mission was. Very, very few. This episode, Mm. they are actually out exploring, mapping. They are way out there, as we will discover, because when the things really hit the fan... There's no one's coming to help. No one's going to come and help them. Right. They are off the beaten path in a very big way. And I love that this is an episode that really does live up to the mission. And the experience of the mission at this point is pretty darn boring, because they don't have anything that they're finding (laughs) until Sulu says... Captain. And they all look up, and we see a big green hand. A big green hand in deep space approaching the Enterprise. Now, this is an episode where I have to say, Steve, you know, we, we talked about how there are certain episodes that are actually improved by the new visual effects. This episode, Who Mourns for Adonis, I think is just fine. In its original yeah, it's, version. It's pretty much the same. The original effects 
are absolutely superb, just as good as the ones that were done in the 21st century. The visual effects for this episode by Effects Unlimited. I, I just think that the scene of the hand approaching the Enterprise is more effective in the original version than in the remastered version, because in the remastered version, you have the hand approaching from the planet, uh, whereas in the original version, all you see in the center of the screen is the, hand. is the hand getting bigger and bigger, and it looks more scary. <laughs> I, I, I think the whole hand thing is kind of cheesy. It, regardless of the effects, I think the idea, it just, I don't know, it's not, it's not a thing I'm a fan of, but it is, it is what it is, you know? <laughs> um, and first they're going like, well, is this really a hand? It's like, no, it's a big field of energy. And, and they're trying to get away from it. They can't get away from it. And I love the moment where they go. It's almost as if it means to grab us. And they try to reverse their engines, but nope, big hand grabs them. And there's the jolt, that famous jolt, everybody flying across the bridge. We're dead still, Captain. Helm doesn't answer. We can't move. And the sting is on, is on Kirk and Spock with a great musical sting by Fred Steiner. That is a classic. It is a classic yep. teaser for, for Star Trek, just representing like why the teasers for the original series are still the best teasers of any Star Trek series. After the titles were back and we're trying to figure out how to get away, we're... Kirk tells Sulu to try rocking back and forth, you know, you, like you do when you're stuck in the mud or something, <laughs> you know. Um, we go, hey, let's try the tractor beam. No, that's not going to work. Well, the, the title for this episode, Who Mourns for Adonai? It's like you touched on, Steve. Adonai is the Hebrew word for God. Adonis is a Greek god of beauty, the Greek mm. god of beauty. But where does this title, Who Mourns for Adonai, come from? Well, in 1821, English poet Percy Shelley combined the words and wrote Adonai's, an elegy on the death of John Keats. And line 415 of that poem reads, Who Mourns for Adonai's? That's where the title came from. Hmm. This scene in particular right now was shot on day two of filming for Who, Who Mourns for Adonai's. That means it was shot on June 1st, 1967. Now, in the last episode, Friday's Child, we talked about how at the end of May, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club uh. Band was released. So while, while they were filming this scene on the bridge, William Shatner is singing himself, during my lunch break, I'm going to the record store and I'm buying Sergeant Pepper. I, it's so funny because I, I never, until doing this show with you, I never put the Six Days War with Sergeant Pepper. Oh, Do you know what I mean? Gosh, yeah. Like this, the, I, I knew they can't, you know, I might have known they happened around the same time, but I never thought about you switching radio stations and you go from news about you know what's happening on the sinai peninsula and you go i don't feel like listening to this and now you're in a day in the life you know? you're with a little help from my friends yeah. or yeah it's really really incredible and, and you know we, we talk so much about about the current events and everything and how so so now we're we're into the summer of love you know we're really mm -hmm. into uh the turn on tune in and drop out time flower power but uh, in the rest of the world, you know, in the Sinai Peninsula, you know, civil rights and Vietnam, it was anything but a summer of love. Well, I mean, but, you know, part of the, the flower power is the peace movement. I mean, it is a reaction to the things that are going on in the Absolutely world. Absolutely, it is, yes. Um, and now we hear something else is coming in on our sensors, and on screen we see a dude's face. And from the moment he starts to talk, he's, he's clearly not, like, like the rest of us, because there is a little bit of a echo and a reverb in mm -hmm. his voice. The eons have passed, and what has been written 
has come about. You are most welcome, my beloved children. Your places await you. Now, even though his name has not been announced yet, this is Apollo, the great god Apollo, played by Michael Forrest. Michael Forrest was an amateur boxer. He, to this day and through the years, has been a very, very busy voiceover actor. On TV, you could have seen him in shows like The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin, Maverick, The Outer Limits, The Twilight Zone, Gunsmoke, and Bonanza. In the 60s, he was in the film Death Watch with Leonard Nimoy, and hmm. this is actually really cool. For those of you who, who watch the fan-made Star Trek episodes from like Star Trek Phase 2, Star Trek The New Voyages, and of course, uh, Star Trek Continues, for the Star Trek Continues episode, Pilgrim of Eternity, Michael Forrest reprised his role as Apollo. Oh, wow. And this episode is absolutely fantastic. All you got to do is go to YouTube and look up Star Trek Continues, and you can watch this episode for free. And it is absolutely fantastic. Again, Michael Forrest, another, another great performance. Hmm. And according to Michael Forrest himself, he was not the first choice to play oh. Apollo. Wait till you hear who the producers wanted and try to imagine this actor playing Apollo. You ready for this? I'm ready. John Voight. What? Yes. <laughs> I was thinking through like big muscular guys and where's John Voight's career? It's 67. So it's before, it's Midnight, before Cowboy, Midnight Cowboy. But it's like right before yeah. Midnight Cowboy because they would have filmed that in 68. It was released in 69 as the only X-rated movie How to win would Best John Picture. Voight play this like super method guy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, he would have been like, don't call me John, call me Apollo. But no, uh, uh, but I look, I think that they they lucked out with Michael Forrest. Uh, He crushed it. Well, and he's a big, muscular dude. Mm -hmm. Not everyone could pull off that toga, particularly in the 60s. Particularly after shaving his chest. That's true. Is that, I mean, one of the things that somebody sort of discovered and talked about in the cinephiles is like, really, abs did not exist until Bruce Lee and then Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, yes, mm-hmm. of course people had abs, but the expectation of what a dude looked like when they took their shirt off, rat, I mean, today, if you're going to take your shirt off on screen, you're doing some serious training, and the expectation is you have muscles. If you look at, with the exception of like Kirk Douglas, who was really in great shape, but you look at most actors, they were just normal. This guy looks real good. Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. Uh, and and like I said, you know, the the uh, the echo in his voice, I mean, and then again, another another great uh, uh, motif played by Fred Steiner, mm-hmm. uh, establishing a sort of godlike presence. And uh, Kirk is uh, really bold from this point. Like, who do you think you are? You well, they definitely are not communicating. Get your hands off my ship. Because Kirk is just like, you know. Down to earth, talking like uh, he talks as the captain, introduces himself. Is, and this guy is talking in a completely different way. Are you responsible for stopping the ship? Yes. I caused the wind to withdraw from your sails. <laughs> give, it, give it back and then we'll talk. <laughs> and I think we get right away what this guy is supposed to be or what he is saying he is. It has been 5,000 years. Have you learned no patience in that time? And you're right. Kirk is belligerent and goes right to threats. I don't know who or what you are, but I must warn you, we have the power to defend ourselves. If you value your safety, release this ship. But he has no idea who he's messing with yet until he he literally feels the grip of Apollo on the Enterprise. You will obey me, lest I close my hand thus. 
and he starts to put pressure on the Enterprise. External pressure building up, Captain. 800 GSC and climbing. And the pressure internally is becoming too much for for the crew to bear. And Kirk even says, all right, you win. I like, too, by the way, that he compares Kirk to Agamemnon, Hector, and Odysseus. Why? Why do I like it? Yeah. Well, because it immediately goes like, okay, this guy knows something about... And what and what's interesting is is what and this is something we'll discuss in detail later on. But but what this guy is saying is those stories you read in the Iliad or in Sophocles or those are real. Yeah, those are all real mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And which of course, I think the crew of the Enterprise thinks like you and I would think that these are myths. Maybe they're based on some kinds of reality, but right, they're right, myths. Right. But but that's one of the things that that this episode really goes to. Is you know I just thought the Greek gods ah that didn't happen or you know maybe they were just you know worshiping false uh, you know maybe not false but where did that those ideas come from they didn't just make them up and that's right. what this episode says oh they didn't make them up but yep. we'll get to that Captain Kirk I invite you and your officers to join me except for Spock but do not bring that one the one with the pointed ears he is much like Pan and Pan always bored me. So just getting a little ahead of ourselves for the sake of a question that I'm going to ask you right now. Okay. Okay. Let's just say that Apollo got what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And he got the mm. entire crew of the Enterprise to beam down and worship him. What would Apollo have done with Mr. Spock? That is a great question. I hadn't thought about it. That is a really good question. I think he would have killed him. He would have killed him. Yeah. He would have absolutely killed him. I, I, because he's saying, don't bring him down. Yeah. And if he's saying already, uh, I don't want you. Know, you can all come down except that one. Then he, he, there's no way that this would have ended well for Spock in any way. Well, and Spock is never going to worship him. Right. Never. Absolutely. Not. Never would do it. And why? Because Spock does not believe in power without a constructive uh-huh. purpose. There you go. And I'm going to come back to that episode, okay. too. Well, no, that definitely, there's definitely a connection there. Uh-huh. But it's interesting, too, that he compares him to Pan, which Spock is nothing like Pan. I mean, Pan is the, you know, the god of music and sex. and um, But Pan and Apollo definitely did have some conflicts. <laughs> uh, Pan challenged Apollo to a, a duel of music. It's like the devil goes down to Georgia, and they have another god to be the judge, and Pan plays his lyre first. And uh, the judge goes, whoa, that is really good. <laughs> and then Apollo, like, stroke, you know, plays one chord on the lyre, and the judge goes, nope, you win. <laughs> <laughs> and Pan loses the battle. But, but, but Apollo says, you know, Pan always bored me. Yeah. So, so, Which he's not boring. You could say a lot of things about Pan, but that guy was not boring, I don't think. Well, so at this point, you know, Kirk feels like he has no choice but to beam down. Yep. And Spock is going to stay in command in the Enterprise. Insulted Spock. Insults are effective only where emotion is present. We'll tackle them together. I love that moment so much, and I love it much more having done this show. Mm -hmm. Because I go like, oh, you know what? The Spock we met in Where No Man Has Gone Before wouldn't be the man to find all the answers. Like, their relationship and their trust of each other and Spock's abilities have grown in the course of the show. And now he really is. I think post City on the Edge of Forever, like their bond is deeper, much Absolutely. deeper than it ever was before. You are so right. You are so right. I mean, if anything is going to bond uh, Kirk and Spock, and of course Kirk and McCoy and Spock and McCoy, it's it's that that incredibly 
epic and personal and galaxy changing moment yeah. in City on the Edge of Forever. But also, Kirk knows that Spock is the right person to not only find the answers, but also to be in command. Because Spock has learned a lot about command since the Galileo 7. Absolutely. And when we see, as we will see throughout the course of the the episode, as we cut back to the Enterprise, Spock in command. He's great. He's very, very different than he was. Absolutely. Especially in the way that he talks to the crew. Yep. Um, We beam down, and it is Kirk, Scotty, McCoy, Chekhov... And Lieutenant Palomas. Now, originally, Spock was going to be part of the landing party, and Sulu Sulu was going mm. to be in command. Gene Kuhn decided, no, I'm going to leave Spock behind on the Enterprise. So Spock's lines were given to Chekhov, and Sulu's lines were given to Spock. Interesting. And very interesting. I mean, of course, you know, they made they, other Of course, they rewrote the them and changed them, yeah. Sure, sure. Again, it's a beautiful score. I always loved that image and hearing the music when you see these five people beaming down Mm -hmm. and they walk over and you see Apollo sitting uh, on his throne at the temple. This was done on day three. This is the first time filming on stage 10 for the Manalopas set, which of course was designed by uh, set designer, Matt Jeffries. So what's about to happen is it's, I really like things in terms of screenwriting where one character is doing one set of things and the other characters are doing a completely different set of things. So he is welcoming them all in his godlike way to this pastoral environment where they're going to live the rest of their lives as shepherds and whatever. And they are doing their Star Trek job of trying to figure out what the heck's going on. And Kirk is asking questions. You know of Earth? You've been there? Search your most distant memories. Those of the thousands of years past, and I am there. Your fathers knew me, and your father's fathers. I am Apollo. I have a question, and I, which I don't necessarily expect an answer. Why did they pick Apollo? Why isn't it Zeus, or Poseidon, or Hades, or Mars? Like, I... Okay. Yeah. That is a great question. And I actually have an answer. Oh, awesome. What was going on during the filming of this episode? Uh, what what was Oh the Apollo Vulcan? missions? Bingo. Oh, that's a good answer. Bingo. Good Bingo. answer. But you raise a great question. Like Zeus, like if, if Michael Forrest got up and said, I am Zeus. Yeah. That that would have been that would have been just as well. Effective. And he does kind of shoot lightning bolts, which is Zeus's power. So so, but you're right. Why Apollo? I, certainly, I have no idea if this was intentional right. when Gilbert Ralston wrote this. But the Apollo program was definitely at the forefront of the uh, certainly of the United States, especially because while this episode was being written and while it was being filmed, NASA was trying to literally uh, pick up the ashes. Right. After the Apollo 1 fire back in January. But Apollo was very, very, very much in the news. The name was very, very well known. And it was fitting because, you know, he's a Greek god. And where this episode's about a Greek god, just seems like a slam dunk that he is Apollo. And I am the Tsar of all the Russias. What's so amazing is how seamlessly and easily Chekhov just becomes part of the main crew. Yeah, yeah. He really, it's a. a it is a testament to Walter Koenig's acting and his abilities and his chemistry 
that he fit right in. He fit right in in such a way that it's easy to forget that he was missing for the entire first season. It really is. And what's funny is it's not like there are other characters who recurred a bunch, like Kyle and Leslie and DeSalle, and none of them just fit in. Oh, he fits in perfectly. Even with that wig, he fits in. And part of it is... They give him jokes. Mm-hmm. You know, giving giving a kind of bit supporting character, you don't generally give them a joke because Shatner wants the joke. You know what I mean? But they give him jokes and it makes him and, – and well, the other thing about him making jokes, it shows how comfortable he is with this group of people. Absolutely. And, and you know, when you're watching Caspar and especially Friday's Child and now Who Wants for Adonis and even the next episode, A Mock yeah. Time, like you said, they're building Chekhov to be – be a really special character for the first part of Chekhov's time on the Enterprise when we actually see him because we have established that Chekhov was on the Enterprise during space, <laughs> yes, even though... It's scientifically you know, proven. Yes, yeah, so we have proven that. Um, but, like, I like how he's like a, a Spock in training. Like, he's trying so hard to give his captain so much information that he's prepared. He's really done a lot of his research and he's, he's 20, he's a kid. He's 22 years old. And he, he keeps, uh, he's very, very proud of his Russian heritage to the point where he's rewrite, rewriting his own history about it. But by the end of the second season, after Gene Kuhn had left, the development of his character kind of falls by the wayside. Right. You know, you see, you see episodes like Spectre of the Gun and The Way to Eden where Chekhov is very, very much featured. Central, yeah. You know, but I feel like, like, the character that they were building him up to be, some of that was they kind of let it go. Right. Um, and one key moment is he apologizes to Kirk and says, I'm sorry, Captain. I never met a god before. And you haven't yet. That one little line, which sounds like it could be a throwaway line, is key to where Kirk stands. And he'll say this later on about the concept of gods. Yeah, but we're going to definitely have to discuss that because there's a lot <laughs> oh, yeah. coming up. Uh-huh. Um, and then Apollo sees Lieutenant Palamas. To say he has a reaction is an understatement. Yes. All right. So I'm debating whether or not I should get into this now okay, or, or a little bit later. But, but okay. So while Kirk and Apollo are talking, McCoy is taking readings. Mm-hmm. And he says, simple humanoid. Right. So he's a simple humanoid, and Kirk's is evidently not so simple. Right. So here you have a human, a humanoid, who is displaying great powers. And as we will discover, he is displaying these powers not because they are coming completely from within, although they kind of are, but through a nearby device. So, okay, not the first time we've seen this. Right. We have seen... The likes of Apollo in its basic, most most bare in the barest sense, with Trelane yep. in the Squire of Gothas, and again with Korop and Sylvia yep. in Catspaw. And we are also, as we will discover, that Apollo just he just wants people around. Yes. Just like Trelane did. Now Trelane Trelane was a spoiled brat who was uh, saw them as toys. Whereas Apollo is uh, extremely entitled. After thousands of years of going without the worship, he wants that worship back. He misses it. But so, like you said, he instantly takes a liking to Palamas. So what does that remind you of? Spaceseed. Yes, sir. This is structurally very similar to Spaceseed. Very similar to Spaceseed. And it never hit me 
until rewatching this episode. But I feel like a broken record when I say that. When no, I, I had the same thing. This. I never had the space seed thought until I was rewatching it a couple of days ago. Uh, but basically, Palamas is Lieutenant Mara McGarris, yeah. isn't she? Isn't she? Well, and they're both experts in history. They're, she's an archaeologist. You know, I don't know quite why these people are on the Enterprise, but <laughs> and here someone comes out of what they're obsessed with. You know, they are seeing. You know, MacGyver's and Spacey and Palamas and who more are nice. They are seeing perfect physical representations of their expertise. And both of them immediately become smitten by them. Yep. Now, you know, we talked about on Spacey how MacGyver's was kind of unlikable, that she wasn't right for the Enterprise, how, you know. She, she wasn't happy there. She uh, wasn't yeah. happy there, yeah. right. But but how do you see MacGyver's and Palamas being different? Well, first of all, we don't have those clues that she's not happy there. We don't have a lot of her character. Exactly. I think I think her character comes out a bit later. Yeah. I think she's actually not that good in the very first scene on the bridge, like in terms of her acting. And I kind of went, oh, is she not going to be good in this episode? As I was just watching it. She actually, I think, is better, much better later on. I agree. What is it you want? You will worship me. If you want to play God and call yourself Apollo, that's your business. But you're no God to us, mister. I said you would worship me. And you've got a lot to learn. And so have you. Let the lesson begin. And I love that they start with the shot of our crew who start looking up as we hear this big music cue before we cut to that Apollo has become a giant. Welcome to Olympus, Captain Kirk. It's, it's a great moment, and the music cue is by Fred Steiner. It's great. That's it's a great. really good music cue. Mm-hmm. Wow. What a great way to end Act 1. It's great. Ah, It's great. Act 2. We're back on the Enterprise. Uhura can't contact the landing party. And who do we have back on the bridge? Or maybe it's his first time on the bridge, is Kyle. Okay, this is not, uh, well, this is not the first time we're seeing Kyle, but you're right. This is Kyle's first time on the bridge in an episode that, that was produced, not not going in air date order, but this is the first time that we were hearing his name. So that is obviously oh, John really? Winston. Yeah, yeah, oh. the first time we are, he is referred to uh, by name. But Spock is now in command, mm-hmm. and he's really forceful. Lieutenant Kyle, I want a complete sensor scan of the planet. Aye, sir. Locate all life forms. I want to know what's going on down there. And then we're back on the planet, and giant Apollo disappears. Coin a phrase. Fascinating. It's perfect yeah. for McCoy to actually... Uh, invoke Spock. It's an it's awesome moment. And I like that we, we asked McCoy, you know, what he got from his readings, and he says, well, I can't say much until I check out these readings. He looks human, but of course that doesn't mean a thing. Because we've met a whole bunch of people that look human, I mean, who aren't, clearly are not human. Whatever he is, sir, he seems to control a remarkable technology. Power is what he controls. You can't do tricks like that without energy. Fine, but what power and where is it? Scout around with your tricorders. Find the source of that power. So that's that's really what it hit me. That that oh okay okay so maybe Apollo wasn't that far removed from Trelane and Korob and Sylvia. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting is I think we can now create like a bit of a hierarchy of there are a lot of civilizations that are more powerful than us. There's ones that are more powerful than us, but are still humanoid like the Telosians, like the people who run the Shoreleaf planet. They're ones who are way more powerful and do have godlike powers, but they need machines like Apollo, Trelane, and Korob, and Sylvia. And then there's ones that 
uh, have transcended human bodies and have powers themselves. Like the Organians. Like the Organians and the Charlie X people. Yep, yeah, the Phatians. And the Q, of course. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> of course, the Q. Um, <laughs> Bones, I wonder if 5,000 years ago, I have an idea. What if he is really Apollo? Why? But then Apollo comes back. I want from you that which is rightfully mine. Your loyalty, your tribute, and your worship. So entitled. So entitled. Much more so than Troy. I don't think it's just entitled. I think, and I think we show this later on, I think to some degree his powers come from worship. I think, which I was going to bring up later, but I think another connector is that we meet a bunch of creatures throughout Star Trek that feed off emotion in one way or another, where it's Wolf in the Fold or Day of the Dove, because I think what he talks about is that the gods kind of left when people didn't have time for them anymore. Oh, my God, you're right. Steve, you're right. You're right. Because we see when that rejection finally ultimately happens to Apollo... He, he even – I mean even though, of course, you know, they, they've gotten away with his power source by that point. But I never considered that, that Apollo needed the adoration for sustenance. Well, if they – and again, it's at the end. But if, if he didn't, then Spock destroying the, the, the power source with his phasers, that would have been enough. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have had to have Lieutenant Palamas reject him. But you do have to have that right. because that oh. is part of his powers. Wow. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. May I ask what you offer in exchange for this worship? Life in paradise. As simple and as pleasurable as it was those thousands of years ago on that beautiful planet so far away. I don't actually think that life in ancient Greece was just simple and pleasurable. I think it was probably pretty difficult and brutal, actually. And if you read the Greek myths, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of disasters and horribleness. Like the idea that the Greek gods made everything cool for everybody is definitely not what happens in those myths. Yeah, he's definitely uh, 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 romanticizing the past. We're willing to talk, but you'll find... We don't bow to every creature who happens to have a bag of tricks. I do think, I really, I, I, it's not for the episode, but in terms of Kirk of going like, hey, dude, listen, can we back it up a little bit and just have a conversation? <laughs> like, maybe there was a way. Yeah, he was very aggressive. Very aggressive. This is, again, and again, this is, this is where I think Gene Kuhn really, really changed uh, the dynamic of Kirk from the one that was really established by Roddenberry. Yeah. You know, Roddenberry's Kirk was more of a, a, a of an explorer and, and he, he saw command as a almost like a burden. Whereas Kuhn's version of Kirk was more he was a soldier. Yeah, a little bit more. Agamemnon was one such as you and Hercules. Pride and arrogance. They defied me until they felt my wrath. I would like to point out that we are quite capable of some wrath ourselves. I like that. Kirk says, I have 430 people on that ship up there. No, you do not, Captain. They are mine. To save, to cherish, or to destroy at my will. But then Palama steps in and she, she questions Apollo. But why? Now, we saw Apollo notice Palamas. Mm-hmm. But now he is noticing her for something else, her demeanor, her strength. But what he says to her is really sexist. You seem wise for a woman. Yes, definitely sexist. Very, very sexist. Which is, uh, which, by the way, I don't have a problem 
with characters being sexist. Like he is from the world of Greek of Greece 5,000 years ago. That culture was like that. Well, that's true. I have a problem with Kirk being sexist in the 23rd century. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like, like what they said on the bridge yeah, about that, her leaving that, to get yeah. married. But, but you know, Apollo, you know, it's from five thousand years ago. That's the way. Well, it, different cultures are different. Mm-hmm. You know, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, by the way, he, he says he says you are like Aphrodite and Athena. There are, couldn't be more two different people than Aphrodite and Athena. Um, <laughs> and boy, when he touches her face, we cut to Scotty. He is not pleased, which is a great setup. We know where this thing is going to go. What is your name? Lieutenant Balamus. I mean your name. Carolyn. This is the MacGyver's moment with Khan. Totally. This is so instead of being in sick bay between MacGyver's and Khan, you know, we're on Pollock's floor between Palamas and Apollo. And just so quickly we're seeing just her become so smitten with Apollo, so uh weak in the knees to the extent. So you're right. Uh, as far as Scotty goes, we are definitely seeing where where this is going to go for basically the rest of the episode with Scotty. I got to say, I don't like Scotty in this episode. He's too much of a hothead. His, his, after seeing him make so many great decisions and really prove that he is worthy of a command of his own on the Enterprise after episodes like uh, A Taste of Armageddon and the way he, he really took command in Friday's Child, like he's completely, like almost like unhinged. Not thinking rationally, not not using good judgment at all. So I 100% agree. I also think, you know, I think if you look at, we'll see when we get to these later episodes, is that Scotty, as we said many times, the most solid, the most military, the most dependable, the most, you know, like methodical person on the Enterprise, he cannot handle the ladies. Yeah. Because Wolf in the Fold... And um, what's lights of Zetar, lights of Zetar. Yeah, like as soon as there's a woman involved, Scotty is just <laughs> he just can't handle it. He's like completely gone. Yeah, he's, he's like good mush. in his engine room with his technical manuals. Yeah, he's good on the bridge when Kirk yeah. and Spock are around. Drinks on Alien under the table, no problem. <laughs> a pretty girl comes along. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> he's out. <laughs> yeah, they did not do a good job of a. But 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 to the extent to that extent, Steve. Uh, they're, they're adding a dynamic. They've added a dynamic to his character that makes him vulnerable. And yes. that, that vulnerability is a pretty woman. But I do definitely think they take it too far. Leave her alone. You protest. You risk much. And so do you. And he draws his phaser. Yeah. He draws. So here's the thing. So Jamie Doohan lost his uh, finger in oh. uh, D-Day. Yeah. So he draws his phaser. Uh, Apollo shoots him with the lightning bolt. Yeah. And James Doohan, Scotty, uh, uh, kneels in pain, holding his hand. Hmm. And we see what happened to the phaser. It's completely mangled. Yeah. Uh, melted. So that would have actually been a really good moment. To show the finger missing? To show that Scotty has lost his finger. Yeah. Not uh, a network TV in 1967 oh, yeah, thing we're going to do. It would have been like, no. Yeah. I mean, that because you're going to see. I mean, that. That would have been finger. That's like a lot. Yeah. Uh, and Chekhov tries to fire. It won't. The phaser is melted. None of your toys will function. And he immediately turns back to Lieutenant Palamas and says, "Where were we?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. He says, "Yes, you are a beauty, but like Artemis, the bow arm should be bare." And now she's in the pink dress. That pink dress. 
Wow. It is stunning. She looks stunning in it. Again, I go, is there anyone else that's having uh, outfits as revealing as the, I mean, I don't even, I mean, this is clearly glued on this fabric. I'm glad you said that yeah. because, because it actually was it glued on. It, it absolutely was. And uh, I, I mentioned when I was going through Leslie Parrish's TV credits, I said I would come back to Mannix. Well, in a 1968 episode of Mannix entitled The Girl in the Frame, Leslie Parrish was on that episode, which was also a Desilu production, like mm. Star Trek, and she wore that dress. Oh, really? Yes. Wow, yes, that's you interesting. You can find pictures of it online. Just Google Leslie Parrish, Star Trek, Mannix, and you'll see the dress. That's hilarious. <laughs> the other thing is, this is Space Seed. Why do you wear your hair up? Oh, my gosh, you're right. This is, this is Apollo's moment of saying... You know, but that's not attractive. <laughs> yeah, is it that you shouldn't be in like work outfits? Oh my gosh, women should be sexy. You that's... are absolutely right. And Bill Tice, you know, you talk about the revealing outfits in in Star Trek. Look at Sherry Jackson and what a little girl's made of. Uh, and obviously Leslie Parrish now. Uh, Angelique Petty John in the Games of the Triskelion, uh, the mini skirts that all no, the female I... crew members wore. So uh, Bill Tice was the costume designer for the original series, and uh, you know, and and also Roddenberry wanted the women to show as much uh, bare skin as possible. Yep, yep. And they, I, he got his wish as producer. I, I think. Um... Everyone listening can uh, know why some of these choices might have been might be problematic, and also know why we as young boys liked them. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and she, her reaction to that dress is oh, it's beautiful. Which I do not think that makes sense. I think she should have had a whoa reaction. She absolutely should have. Yeah. She should have said no, no. I want my yeah. uniform back, please. And he says. Come on with me and Scotty. He's going to get his ass kicked in this episode. Yeah, he really goes, She's not going with you. Runs after him and takes a big shot and goes flying over the table. This stunt was filmed on day four of the production for Who Mourns for Adonis. So the stuntman is Jay Jones. And that scene where Apollo throws Scotty back and he goes flying over mm. the table, Jay Jones filmed that scene. And he was knocked out cold, and they had to rush him wow. to the hospital. But watching the dailies, the producers thought, they, 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 I think we need to do this again. But Jay Jones was injured and couldn't do it. So James Dewan said, I will do it. Oh, wow. So James Dewan insisted that he could do it. He filmed the stunt. Wow. But then when they were going through the dailies of both versions— the producers ultimately decided that the Jay Jones version was better. So wow. that's what you see. That is fascinating. Interesting, huh? In many, many ways. <laughs> Come. It's all right, Captain. I'll go. Yeah, sure, sure she will. <laughs> yeah. And they walk off hand in hand and disappear. There's a little bump in the plate, by the way, which yeah. means that the, the camera, they tried to lock it down and some somebody walked by and just tapped it and it moved a tiny degree. And that's why you see that bump. Stunt coming around. I'm not sure it's wise to let her go off like that. He would have been rather difficult to stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Scotty's okay. He's tingling all over. And immediately, when he hears that she's gone, he's immediately like, we got to go get her. Like, Scotty is, he's off. Yeah, yeah. He, Scott, that's what I mean. That's yeah. like, come on, get a grip, Scotty. And Kirk basically tells him yeah. to get a grip. 
I understand your concern over her, but she volunteered to go with him. Hopefully to find out more about him. She's doing her job. I think it's about time you started doing yours. We've got to find out the source of his power. You've got to try, Cora. Use it if you're able to. You know, Shatner plays this scene yeah. perfectly because the tone shifts. You hear him getting mad. Yeah. And one more thing. I want no more unauthorized action against Apollo or whatever he is. That's an order. Aye, aye, sir. And then he shifts back. Besides your stiff-necked thistle head, you could have gotten yourself killed. Like Shatner plays this moment so perfectly, the way he, he shifts the tone from being, uh, you know, orderly to angry to concerned about his friend. Yeah. And it, it, it's so out of character because you think about, like, Scotty is calmly draining phasers while they're being attacked by animals in the Galileo 7. And then when Spock shoots off the boosters and ignites them, he goes, ah, distress signal. Like, he is so, in so many episodes, he is just calmly, whatever's going on, he's focused on the job. Even, like, City on the Edge of Forever, hey, if we don't come back, you're going to have to go back in time and save the galaxy. And Scotty goes, aye. Right. You know, mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. he is the calmest guy, uh, but that's not who we're seeing. Here. Not that's not this guy. Yeah, here. it's a way. It's just over the top. Scotty doesn't believe in God. Follows no God. So I want to just talk briefly about this. So we, I think, because we grew up in a basically monotheistic dominated world, our image of what God is is God mm-hmm. is this all powerful, completely divorced from human reality kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. That's not what the polytheistic gods are like. And it's funny, I read a book years ago, uh, it's called God, a Biography. It's by a guy named Jack Miles, who's like a, a Jesuit religious scholar. And the idea of the book was just to track, imagine God as a real character and track his biography. And one of the things he talks about is that in the Old Testament, it's all through the Old Testament, that... Uh, that the God that appears is probably based on a bunch of other myths from a bunch of other places. And so his character shifts. And so there's the God in Genesis who says, let there be light. That's kind of the all powerful. Sure. But the God that shows up in the Sodom and Gomorrah story or talks to Abraham or the God that's in the garden of Eden talking to Eve, that's more like a dude, and the, <laughs> and, and, you know, who has like jealousies and personalities and limitations. The Greek gods, they're not like God. They are, very, very human with emotions and desires and flaws and vulnerabilities. And so that, that whole conception of what a god is is just different. Uh, they also have unique powers. Yes. Like, almost you, like they are. Specific unique powers. Superheroes to an extent. Exactly. Follows no god. But he could have been taken for one, though. Once. This next conversation is a perfect example of what makes Star Trek so great. A genuinely thought-provoking conversation. Say, 5,000 years ago, a highly sophisticated group of space travelers landed on Earth around the Mediterranean. And McCoy definitely picks up right away and has that epiphany and is now with Kirk. Yes. To the simple shepherds and tribesmen of early Greece... Creatures like that would have been gods, especially if they had the power to alter their form at will and command great energy. In fact, they couldn't have been taken for anything else. It is a theory that makes going out of Star Trek, just getting back into the real world, makes total sense. Um, yes, I think it 100% does. But? 
Well, but okay, are they the same people who were the Norse gods or the same people who we read about in the Bhagavad Gita or in African gods or Native American gods? Are these all are these different groups of aliens that visited in different places? That's a great point. That is a great point. Uh, well, in the sake of this conversation, you're talking about the Greek gods. You're right. talking about the gods around the Mediterranean. You, you know, he doesn't he doesn't go off on a No, of course. A, but well, and this is the so because this brings up what I wanted to bring up, which yeah. is that you know there's a word that comes up a lot. I don't think about it that much, but the word is canon. That these certain things are canon and certain things are not canon. So if it was in you know the original series, well that's canon. If it was in some comic book, maybe it's not canon. And and I don't pay attention to it all that much. But I have to ask this question: Are we saying that in the Star Trek universe, it is canon that the Greek myths are facts? In the Star Trek universe, we are we are exploring the possibility in a deeper way without confirming them. I think this episode says they are fat. Let's we'll wait till we get a little further. But I think Kirk says no. That's what happened. Listen, if you really think about it, what Kirk is saying makes a whole lot of sense. When you get to the end of the episode, uh, even after just the comparisons to Trelane and Korob and Sylvia with having a uh, a device that enhances his powers or gives him just such a big source of power, you take that away. You know, the final moment feels very godlike to me. Oh yeah. So maybe Kirk is wrong. Maybe yeah. maybe they were gods. I just think that. Well, what's a god though? But but Kirk, well, like Kirk says, someone who can command great powers, and so. But, but to to Kirk, Apollo is not a god. But what he's saying is, 5,000 years ago, when humanity, when the human race was more primitive and more tribal, then those kinds of beings would be so far and above that they would be considered gods. But humanity has evolved. Their, their intelligence, their ideas, and certainly their technology and their potential has evolved in such a way that that they've risen a little bit further than they were 5,000 years ago. The gap has closed. Not, not completely. There's still a very big gap between, obviously, the, you know, uh, Captain Kirk and, and Apollo. But it's, it's a little bit closer. So I don't, think that, I don't think that this episode is saying for sure that the Greek gods, they weren't really gods, that they were aliens. What I'm saying is that this episode... Just brings about the possibility, sure, a very strong possibility, supported by a very plausible theory that maybe they were, maybe they were aliens, maybe. Okay, so uh, I think that's all uh, absolutely true, and I and I agree with it, and I don't think the episode says definitively what Correct. it is. Um, it's funny you you reminded me, and I had to go look it up. The uh, famous famous Arthur C. Clarke quote, which is, "Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic." Um, which is that, so you're in ancient Greece and these people come along that have all these powers. Well, that's magic. It's not science. Exactly. Whereas for them, it might be science. Um, Is that what occurred to me as you were speaking is that is a God something that is defined like a lion? A lion is a lion. A God is a God. Or is a God a label put on a more powerful being by a less powerful being? In other words, is it a way that we talk about something? Because, you know, and I always think about this in uh, Marvel Comics. So Thor and Loki, they're gods. But there are a bunch of people just as powerful as them that we do not call gods. 
are they gods because they are immortal? Like, what do we mean? Like, in the monotheistic world, when we say God, we mean the omnipotent, omnipresent, powerful creator of everything. Which Kirk refers to. Yes, well, we're going to get to that. Um, <laughs> but, but when you say gods, like, like Zeus and Hera and Thor and Odin and all those, we're not saying that. We're saying something else. So are we just saying that a god is a way more powerful creature and therefore is Q a god? Here is the answer to your question. Yes. Or here's my answer to your question. I would love to hear everyone else's answer to this question on our Facebook page to plug Enterprise Instance. <laughs> but, Steve, that is why God is spelled with a capital G. And God's is a lowercase. Mm, okay. So that label is a lion, a lion. A lion has a lowercase l. Mm-hmm. If it was the lion, a deity, the deity, mm-hmm. like the the god that you are referring to, it would have been with a capital L. But for the, ca- in the case so of... So these are different words, essentially. The, it's a, it is absolutely a different word. The, the, the presence of the capital G is what makes God, God, in the sense of God, you know, God. Right. Okay. But in the sense of more powerful than us, for them to be referred to as, quote unquote, gods, is a label. It, it is an identifier. It is a species of sorts. It is also the way Gary Mitchell saw himself and where no man has gone before. And Gary Mitchell, his powers were not natural. He got them. But when he got them, he did not need to rely on a power source to utilize them. To that extent, Gary Mitchell is more powerful than Apollo. 100%. 100% more than. Great point. But is Gary Mitchell God with a capital G? No. Does he have the powers of a god? Absolutely. So do the Thasians, for that matter. So do the Metrons. Right. So do the Organians. And so do Trelane and Korob and Sylvia. They have the powers of of gods, but not that they that but they're just not identified as gods because unlike Apollo, these other characters don't have their basis in those myths. So I think we have sort of three things, which is one is the capital G God, which is this other thing, all powerful, a, a totally different thing. That is God. There's only one of them. That's it. Then we have these people that we can consider to be gods. But what makes them gods is the relative distance between our power levels and that I can't understand yours. So like to Dr. Daner, Gary Mitchell is not a god. They're the same. But us looking up to him and not understanding that, we go... Oh, they are gods. Look, I mean, Gary Mitchell had powers, again, that he did not need to rely on a temple right. or on a transmuter or, or on a mirror machine. He just had those powers, and yeah. so did Dana. Right. But again, I just think for the, for the sake of, like, uh, of labels, you know, I think it's fair to use the word gods as a description, as a label to Apollo. You know what else that just occurred to me? What's that? Is that the Kirk, who is being so uh, confrontational or contradictory with Apollo, is the Kirk that knew Gary Mitchell and Charlie X and met the Orgay. He met a whole bunch of people like this, Antrelane. Right, right. So he's it, almost jaded yeah. now by, by meeting a, 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 a being with, with superior powers. And with the exception of the Organians, all of these people have been flawed. Right. And mostly ones that you had to fight against. And boy, is Apollo flawed. Yeah. Majorly flawed. We're back on the Enterprise. 
and Sulu's going to reverse some polarity and there's some big shakes and no, that's not good. Um, <laughs> and uh, Spock orders Uhura to restore communications. Well, I'm working, sir, but I can't do anything with this. And then I think Spock essentially pulls the Kirk move from City on the Edge of Forever and Friday's Child, which he goes, oh, it's totally like, oh, well, maybe that's too hard for you. You know, I, I, you know, I guess if you can't do it. And then Uhura goes, well, I might be able to rig up a subspace bypass circuit. Good, do so. His leadership skills have gone way, way up. Way, way up. And we're going to see them go up even further as this episode progresses. But so in Friday's Child, which was the episode produced right before this, mm-hmm. which was another episode that we see all seven cast members not just in the episode, but featured prominently in the episode. Two back-to-back episodes where Star Trek is not just about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Star Trek is a true ensemble show. The beginning, and this is one of the reasons, Steve, why I have said repeatedly since we started doing this podcast that Star Trek hit its stride in the beginning of season two because we get to see a more more ensemble type Didn't you say dynamic. Star Trek hit its stride at the end of season one? Well, well, yeah, end of season one, beginning of season okay. two. Yeah, definitely end of season one, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, all that after Coon. But, yeah. but when they came back for season two and they were using the same three directors, Pevney, Daniels, and Sinetsky, and, you know, they're, they're back for another season. And, and you know, Gene Coon is, is very much the showrunner now. And they got it down. You know, they mm-hmm. got it down. And it just must have been great for everyone, you know, on this cast, especially – Michelle and James Doohan and Walter and George to get these two back-to-back scripts where they're all so prominently featured. Well, I think, you know what's really happened I, that you just kind of clued me into? The show is great. In the, the show is great, period. I mean, obviously, we wouldn't be doing this. I think what really hits at the be, in the beginning of season two is the ensemble is like the team is really defined and together now. We are seeing them work as a team just like we will see them work as a team in like Star Trek four, yeah. you know, and, and Star Trek three. So, and I think that's, that's the Star Trek that we all love is yeah. when we are seeing the seven of them work together. So Sulu calls Spock over, he's found some kind of energy source and he can't pinpoint it. And Spock says, I would suggest Mr. Sulu, that if you cannot find out where the power source is, you should find out where it is not a simple process of elimination. And I love Sulu's reaction. Like the whole planet, sir. And Spock looks at him and he goes, yes, sir. Oh, planet. <laughs> but, I, but it's like, how many times have we done this? How many times have we had to methodically go through a huge space? Because that's all we could do. It's Galileo 7. It's in Metamorphosis. It's in a it's bunch. It's in the Squire of Gothos. It's in the Squire of Gothos. Is that that's what we got to do. And Spock looks at some weird fancy slide rule. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Real primitive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we're with. Palamas and Apollo at a lovely little spot looking over the water, and he is putting some moves on her. Oh, yeah. He's really charming. The, well, the, well, I was going to say the <laughs> pants off. <laughs> well, that's going to be a question I'm going to ask, actually. Yep. Oh, We're yeah. going to get to that question. <laughs> Are you frightened of me? Frightened? No, I don't think so. Of course, a girl doesn't go walking with a... A god? And I like her response. All right. God. So that kind of is part of like your your question that you just had, a God. Well, and I think she's going, I'm not if that's what you want to call yourself, fine. Like, right. yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna argue with you. But here's the thing. We've just seen Apollo show incredible power. He is not to be messed with. And now we are seeing Apollo 
as a really different person, much more mm-hmm. vulnerable. Mm-hmm. He's very different with Palamas than he definitely is with, with Kirk and, and Scotty. But Michael Forrest, his performance, the way he is able to go from being powerful and intimidating to these moments here and for the rest of the episode, you know, we just see how much uh, of, a, of a tragic figure Apollo is. I mean, really, no pun intended here, but this is like, he's like the ultimate Greek tragedy, a tragic figure. Uh, he's also a sad person, and he's so needy. Yeah. He's like a very high maintenance. <laughs> it's true. What happened to the others? Artemis, Hera. They returned to the cosmos. The wings of the wind. You mean they died? No. We're immortal, we gods. But the earth changed. And this is the key line to me in terms of what his needs are. He says, Our fathers changed. They turned away until we were only memories. God cannot survive as a memory. We need love, admiration, worship. You know, it's like if this is an episode where you have to pay attention to every word, whether it is really clarified or just like a throwaway, a throwaway line, like, Kirk saying, uh, you know, uh, Chekhov saying, I haven't met a god before. And Kirk saying, well, you haven't yet. Uh, I think this is another one. You know, a god cannot exist as a memory. But I think that god really plays into how even without the physical presence, the, the physical manifestation of their powers, a device that gives them their powers, that that's not alone. That's not enough to sustain them. You know, Paul has been waiting 5,000 years basically for the Enterprise to uh, cross its path. And he's like, okay, great. You know, I've got my sustenance back. It is, it is that adoration, the worship that, like you said, like other aliens, like other powerful beings that sustains him. Well, and I, there's this weird way that I think he's like the guardian of forever in the sense that he's been out there waiting yep. for a mm-hmm. long, long time. And all his friends are gone. He's the old, they're all like, they're never coming. It's over. And they all join the universe and whatever, whatever that means. And he's like, no, no. They'll be here. <laughs> the great pumpkin will come. He will come. Waiting. You waiting. have a powerful being waiting. And just like, you know, I know I like the Squire of Gothos a little more than you do. But in some of these episodes that we've covered since then, we've referenced Trelane and the oh, Squire yeah. of Gothos. And in, in that episode, Trelane was definitely looking through a telescope at, at the Earth. Oh, yeah. Waiting, waiting, waiting. And then in this star desert, sees the Enterprise speeding by. He says, aha. And that's exactly right. what Apollo does here in Who Mourns for Outer Eyes. What, what's interesting to me is the vulnerability he shows, particularly in this next moment. If he had shown this vulnerability to Kirk, we might have had a totally different scenario. Because he says, she says, do you really think you're a god? In a real sense, we were gods. Which means that he's saying, essentially, well, no, we're not gods. We were a god in the sense of our power level compared to these other people. He said, We had the power of life and death. We could have struck out from Olympus and destroyed. We have no wish to destroy. If he had gone to Kirk and gone, listen, I'm this alien being. We were the Greek gods on your planet, and we really like that, and I'd like to work out a deal with you again. I could be, you know, like with a more human approach, we maybe wouldn't have all the conflicts we end up having. So we came home again. It's an empty place without worshippers. But we had no strength to leave. So we waited, all of us, through the long years. 
You said the others didn't die. Even for a god, there's a point of no return. And I like this story, the, the image of Hera's death or whatever it is. He says, She stood in front of the temple and spread herself upon the wind. Thinner and thinner. Until only the wind remained. That's great writing, by the way. I think so, too. But he had faith in humans. You know, he had faith that they would come. Of all the gods I knew when I waited, waited for you to come sit by my side. I don't understand. And, like, we're already clued into what he's talking about. Even 5,000 years ago, the gods took mortals to them to love, to care for. Like Zeus took Leto, my mother. Leto was not a mortal. Leto was a child of the Titans, I think. So that's actually not correct, but... Um, <laughs> But it's okay. You were gods of passion. Of love. And he kisses her. We cut back to to the landing party. And uh, again, another moment for Chekhov to shine. Some creatures can generate and control energy with no harm to themselves. The electric eel on Earth. The giant dry berm of Antos IV. The fluffy... Not the whole encyclopedia, Chekhov. The captain requires complete information. Spock's contaminating this boy, Jim. It's so welcoming him in, into the family. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, we're just a few episodes into season two, and we're like, no, no, this guy's, he is equal with, with the, not the big three, of course, but with the others. Are you suggesting that he taps a flow of energy and channels it through his body? That would seem most likely, sir. Mr. Chaco, I think you've earned your pay for the week. <laughs> like, he, he says that again to, to Scotty in uh, Doomsday Machine. Yeah. Um, but now Apollo comes back. Where is Palamas? So Scotty, who Kirk told, like, settle it down, dude, is not settled down, comes right at him. You bloodthirsty Saracen, what have you done, honey? Takes another big hit. Huge stunt. This stunt and the previous one, like, even by today's standards, for a television show? Yeah. Those are incredible stunts. Yeah. I love, by the way, when Kirk calls people Mr. All right, Mr. You wanted worshippers? You've got enemies. And Apollo just shows his power. It's pretty much a force choke from Darth Vader. I mean, that's pretty much what he does to him. Absolutely, he's using the force. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Crossing the streams. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end of Act 2. Great act. Great ending to an act. Yep. We're right back where we were at Act 3. Kirk can breathe again. You will learn discipline. You will learn... And there is a pained look on his face, and then he disappears. And Chekhov sees it. He is like a sort of a Spock in training, that when Apollo uses great powers, he needs to go off and recharge his uh, energy cells, so to speak. Where's Apollo? He disappeared again, like the cat in that Russian story. Don't you mean the English story, the Cheshire cat? Cheshire? No, sir. Minsk, perhaps. All right, but... all right. <laughs> okay, here's the key to this. The key to the joke. Watch Chekhov after he says it is he smiles in a way to say, I know I'm joking. Yeah, yeah. That, and that's the key, is that he is so comfortable, the lowest ranked guy, he is so comfortable making little silly jokes in a life and death situation with the captain of his ship. Yeah, just like he did in, in Friday's Child. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he said, I know that saying, it was invented in Russia. You know, and they, the bridge crew looks at him and he like, you know, smiles like, yeah, yeah, I'm just joking. And yes, like all running gags, it runs too much, you know. It becomes it becomes like uh, performative, I think, at a certain point, which I don't like. But in this moment, it's fun. 
Scotty <laughs> groans and comes back to. Now his arm won't move. I mean, this guy. <laughs> what would he expect? Yeah. If I remember my ancient legends, the gods, after expending energy, required rest, even as we humans. And Apollo's gone. After attacking you and Mr. Scott. You think maybe he's off somewhere recharging his energy cells? This is where Kirk basically leans forward and says, not chess, Mr. Spock. Poker. I would say it's also where Kirk figures out how to beat Charlie X is he can only control so much. He's reaching his limit. He's so reaching we're going to over, overload him. I guess going back to the Corbomite maneuver, mm-hmm. this is Kirk taking another risk. Yep. It is definitely a risk because if, if it comes to fruition, not everyone's going to survive what yeah. he's about to pull off. Well, And what he's essentially saying, because he says if we all come at him and he co- we get him to attack one of us, then the others can gang up on him. Overpower him. And what I think he's really saying is... We get him. To, I get him to attack me. Right, right. He's, so I'm going to die. And, and clearly, Apollo does not like Kirk. Yeah. And he's the one that Apollo is going to go after. And we're back on the Enterprise. Uhura is working with some sparky thing underneath the, the console, uh, which I love. Again, she's getting so much more to do in season two. For sure. Speed is essential, Lieutenant. Mr. Spock, I haven't done anything like this in years. If it isn't done just right, I could blow the entire communication system. It's very delicate work, sir. And I love Spock's response. Instead of now, if we would, if Spock was still in his uh, uh, formative year yeah. back in the Galley of Seven, seven yeah. his response to this might have been a little different. Yep. But what does he do? He gives her positive reinforcement. Mm-hmm. I can think of no one better equipped to handle it, Miss Uhura. Please proceed. This is the Spock who will always remember the lessons he learned. In the Galileo 7. Again, this is about leadership. She knows she has to go fast. Telling her she has to go fast when she's going as fast as she can isn't useful. Giving her positive reinforcement is. Absolutely. Back on the planet, Apollo reappears on the throne room and our guys aren't even looking at him. I know you're trying to escape me. It's useless. I know everything you do. I tried to be compassionate toward your kind. You know nothing about our kind. You know only our remote ancestors who trembled before your tricks. See, I think Kirk is 100% convinced that this guy was Apollo and that that was real. Yeah, I, he, yeah. he definitely is. Yeah. Especially after that, that talk, uh, yeah. that conversation he had with McCoy. I could sweep you out of existence with a wave of my hand and bring you back again. I can give life or death. Which, by the way, these are not in Apollo's powers, according to Greek myth. What else does mankind demand of its gods? Mankind has no need for gods. And I'm really curious to know what you think of this next part from Kirk. He says, we find the one quite adequate. So I think that line is extremely problematic. I wish it wasn't in the show. I do too. Because if we're saying that Kirk now believes that these were the gods for Greek myths, then we're also saying that Kirk believes in a monotheistic religion. And we can only assume that that's Christianity. I mean, it, Kirk's not a Muslim, as far as we know. He's not Jewish, although actually he is. Yes, he actually <laughs> he technically is Jewish. Is Jewish. <laughs> so, so it's like Star Trek is now, and, and I, you probably know, I'm guessing there were fights about this line. Uh, we, that's a really good question. I, I don't know uh, if there were fights about this line, but I think what's interesting is that this episode was shot two episodes after Metamorphosis. Mm. At the end of Metamorphosis, when Spock tells the companion who has merged with Commissioner Hedford, that you cannot create life. And the companion, Hedford, responds, that is for the maker of all things. 
So Gene Kuhn wrote that episode from start to finish. He was the only writer to work on that script. And now we are hearing Kirk say, we find the one God quite sufficient. I think that's a line. I feel like that feels like it's a line from, from Kuhn. And I might be wrong. It might, might have been from Roddenberry because he did the final, final version of it. But I agree. I wish he, Kirk would have just left it as mankind has no need for gods. We're doing just fine on our own or something like that. Well, here, so it's, it, it, they have put themselves between a rock and a hard place. So I have no problem with the creator of all things because that's sort of a vague. There, is, there are things that we don't understand. You know, yes, I don't have power of life and death. That's beyond me. That's something. I, creator of God, all things is, is, is vague. It's nonspecific. We find the one God quite sufficient is saying a specific religion. And it's also saying it with regards not just to the people of the earth. Yeah. You're saying it to the entire, like everyone in the Native right. Federation of Planets. Well, and, and the thing is, it's, it's you know, I mean, we don't need to get into a long talk about religion. I'm, an, I'm raised Jewish, but I'm an atheist. Um, and anytime anybody highlights this is the truth, they are essentially saying to everybody else who has a different truth, what you believe in is wrong. I was uh, raised Jewish as well, yeah. and I, I would say that I'm spiritual. Okay. I believe in in a in something. I just don't know if it's you know this God that we. Well, that'd be agnostic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and and you know, and and I think that in general, Star Trek has a philosophy of secular humanism. You know, it has a philosophy of we. What's important is us, and we will figure it out. And that morally is morality is not necessarily derived from a particular religious stance; that it can come from wherever. And this line says something really different. I agree. Yeah, yeah. That, even as I, as when I was growing up, that line always stuck out to me. I was like, "Oh, he's saying that there's there's God," you yeah. know. But of course, growing up and you know having a much a broader scope on life and everything, but life, the universe, and everything. Um, well, then the meaning's 42. That's totally different. Yes, yes. Uh, here's the meaning of the, the question. What is the meaning of life? Uh, but but this is, uh, it is definitely a line that is questionable. Well, I think what happened, they put themselves in a rock in a hard place. Because if you say the Greek myth gods are real, and that you're not saying anything else, you're essentially saying, but the god god that most of America believes in, we're not endorsing that at all. I'm That's, actually surprised, actually, that... That Stan Robertson, who was the standard and practices uh, executive in charge of, of Star Trek at NBC, that that he was okay with that line. Maybe just... I bet they push for that line. I bet NBC pushed for it. I have mm, no evidence mm, of this, mm. but like the um, confirming a Christian ideology in the United States in the '60s and even today is not an unusual thing. Right, right, right. That is the accepted. Yeah. And there are many, many, many people who believe that the United States is a Christian country. Um, that wouldn't you can guess at what my belief would be, but <laughs> but but there are certainly many, many people who believe that. One of the many reasons why this episode holds up and why it's yeah. it's provocative in different ways and why it's definitely worthy of this of this kind of a conversation. I offer you eternal rest and happiness according to the ancient ways. I ask little in return. But what I ask for, I insist upon. So he's like, everything will be cool if you just worship me and do what I say. Right, exactly. Slavery. Yeah. And they don't look at him. They turn back around. Yep. 
right before they go do what they're going to do, we hear Kirk say, Look after the girl. And Apollo's going, you're going to gather laurels, and you're going to sacrifice deer, and all this stuff. And Kirk says, Go! And they all turn around and start laughing at him. It's a great scene, and the music that's playing under the scene is actually... George Dunning's score for Metamorphosis when mm. Spock encounters the companion ah, for the very first time. Ah, okay. But it's it's great use of that score and and they're trying to overwhelm Apollo and Palamas is trying to get mm-hmm. in, in each of their faces and they, they, they all keep pushing her away. Yep. Because and, she doesn't know the plan. Right, she doesn't know the plan. But oh wait a minute. If she did know the plan, would she have been for it? Well, if Kirk had made his speech, yeah, yeah, you know, but yeah. and so she's trying to protect them really heroically, and Kirk is saying, "Hey, stop, stop! You shall reap the rewards of your insolence. We're tired of your phony fireworks, mortal. You have earned this. No, don't, Lieutenant. Father doesn't destroy his children. And Kirk is going, Lieutenant, and it literally is, I was ready to die. Mm-hmm. That's what he's saying. Mm-hmm. I was supposed to get killed to save all your lives." You're ruining it. That's right, essentially yeah, what's yeah, going on. Yeah, he was he was ready. Hello, please. You know so much of love. Which is an interesting statement coming from her. And she grabs his hand and says, Please don't hurt them. And he softens and says, I shall be lenient with you for her sake. You will make plans to bring the rest of your people down. Be sure your artisans bring tools. And Kirk goes, sarcastically, I think. And you will supply the herds of sheep. And the pipes we will play, and the simple skins we'll wear for clothes. <laughs> I don't think Kirk is into living in this world. Uh, yeah. You know what just occurred to me? What's that? So if Apollo wins, do you know what the life of the crew of the Enterprise is? Uh, I'm going to say the Paradise Syndrome. The Apple. Oh, you're right. Is that they're going to go and gather tribute to gods and the god and live simple lives. But in this case, the god is not a machine. Right. Yeah, but I see your point. Yeah. You will dismantle your ship for the supplies you need, and I'll crush its empty hull. Well, that was all Kirk needed to hear. Yeah, that's <laughs> like you're going you're gonna to kill the woman I love. Yeah, you know? exactly. I have been too patient. I shall be patient no longer. And they disappear. And they're like, what do we do now? Do we have it? Like, basically, do we have any other options? And Kirk has one more idea. One more, and it depends on the lieutenant's loyalty. If she fails us, we better get used to herding goats. Well, what I like about what he says is he says it depends on the lieutenant's loyalty. And it's really interesting because what saved us in Where No Man Has Gone Before? It was the loyalty of Dr. Daner. And what saved us in Space Seed? It was Marla MacGyver's. Marla MacGyver's at the last minute. Right. And now we have Palamas. It was also our criticism of what little girls are made of that Chapel didn't have that moment when she should have. Right. That's true. I offer you more than your wildest dreams have ever imagined. You'll become the mother of a new race of gods. You'll inspire the universe. All men will revere you almost as a god yourself. All right. Now, for, for all these years... I thought that this scene was redundant of the previous scene mm. where Apollo and Palamas are off in La La Land. Okay. But then rewatching the scene, knowing where this episode was supposed to go on a scene that was written, a scene that was filmed and ultimately cut. And we'll get to it at the very mm. end. Oh. So now we specifically hear Apollo say to Palamas, you will become the mother 
of a new race of gods. Apollo was being literal. Mm-hmm. Agreed. You will become the mother of a new race of gods starting now. So the, you're, you're at the same question I was going to ask is, do they have sex? Yes, they do. I think 100% they do. They absolutely have sex. Not only do I think they have sex, I think it's really good sex. I'll bet it's hot sex. <laughs> yeah. Well, because he is a god of love. I mean, like, um, he, Apollo's got some moves. And what I love about it, too, just putting aside the, the, the sex part, <laughs> is that what did Kirk just say? Everything is dependent upon her loyalty. And now Apollo has offered her the most amazing thing possible. Okay, so what we, what we did when we were talking about Space Seed, you know, we basically asked the question, when Khan shows up at MacGyver's quarters before right. they go to the dinner, that they have sex? And we said, yeah, they did, for yeah. sure. Uh, but in this case... It's not just we're, we're, we're assuming with, with strong conviction that they did. Like it was actually written. Oh, wow. Because of something that is revealed in the coda to a film scene that was ultimately dropped before it made air. Mm. But he says to her, again, you will become the mother to a new race of gods. That was not just some idealistic, optimistic you know, metaphorical statement. No, it is a fact because we're going to start right now with that. Because when we come back in Act Four, and Kirk is trying to reach the Enterprise with no luck, mm-hmm. we see Palamas come back without Apollo, and she's got a big smile on her face. Yes, she does. What's happened to her? What do you think happened to yeah. her, Scotty? And I'm sorry to say, this is going to break your heart. Yeah. But they had sex. Yeah. For sure, they had sex. Um, and. Scotty wants to go to her, and and and, uh, and Kirk goes, no, no, I'll talk to her. And I love Chekhov goes, uh, perhaps if I assisted. How old are you? Twenty-two, sir. Then I'd better handle it. Yeah, it's <laughs> a funny little beat. He'll give us everything we ever wanted, and he can do it too. Is she signed on to Apollo's plan? Is she ready to beam down and live here now? At this oh, moment, yeah, she is. Me, yeah, absolutely. For sure, she she's she's bought into it. She's 100%. in a hundred percent. She's committed. Uh, there's no question. But that's going to change because she is just saying it's going to be puppy dogs and ice cream. Even though if we're going to have to sacrifice the puppy dogs, we're going to have all the ice cream we want. (laughs) All right, Lieutenant, you can come down from Mount Olympus now. You've got work to do. William Shatner in this scene is perfect because he is being forceful with her. He thrives on love, worship, attention. Yes. We can't give him that worship. None of us can, especially you saying, you've got to reject him. You've got to shun him. Or we will all be condemned to a life of slavery. And we are so far out, we will never get help. Or perhaps the thought of spending an eternity bending knee and tending sheep appeals to you. She doesn't see the light. Oh, but you don't understand. He's kind and, and he wants the best for us. And he's so lonely. But what does Kirk do whenever he sees that something he is doing is not working? He learns from the situation, and he changes his strategy because he sits next to Palamas says, give me your hand. He appeals to her on a human level, not as a superior and a subordinate, taking orders and being loyal to the service, but being loyal to your race. We're the same We share the same history, the same heritage, the same lives. We're tied together beyond any untied. And he's basically 
being persuasive like he was with the companion, saying, you're different. We are the same. It is a beautiful speech. Shatner is right on point, pitch perfect with his performance here. And she sees the light and she knows she knows the right thing to do. She is devastated that she knows she's going to break his heart, although she doesn't know the extent to which she will break his heart. And what do you think of this scene, Steve? So I have two thoughts. Actually, I have many thoughts. The first is, I agree, I think Shatner's performance is great. I have a very different reaction to that second half of the scene. Because you're, you're right. It, it, it relates to metamorphosis in two ways. One is what you just said, is that he says, look, you can't become one with a man because we're human and you're a big cloud of sparkly colors. Um, but the other thing that is that it's also saying the opposite of what's in metamorphosis. Because in metamorphosis, when we hear that the companion loves the man and Cochrane gets all upset, they're like, look, love is love. So very love is love, you know, different. Yeah, it's a different species. Doesn't matter. Agreed. It's still cool. And what he says here is a very, uh, a very human centric. You're a human. That's not a human. You got to stick with us. Like, and I don't like that philosophy very much. Okay. Okay. I, I see your point and I agree with you, but in the case of metamorphosis, it was the four of them on the planet, including Hedford. In this case, there's a threat to the Enterprise. Well, this is the thing, is that, well, and it goes into, is it cool to say a thing that maybe isn't so cool to get a thing that is cool, which is saving the Enterprise? Well, you know? I think in the context of when this was written, what he was saying may have been more appropriate for the times than it, than it is now. I agree that that it's not as progressive, okay? His speech to Palamas is not as progressive the way he was trying to reason with the companion in Metamorphosis. You're, you're absolutely right about well, that. And but goes, I don't think he's wrong either. Well, and it goes to this thing of what, what we've really seen as we've examined Star Trek closely is there are a lot of contradictions. There's a lot of this is true and the opposite is true. Um, and Which is fine, by the way. Which is fine. Well, I'll tell you, I've been, I've been meaning to say this forever. It's not doesn't apply that much here. But in terms of opposites, you know what I think is the most central opposite to all of Star Trek philosophy? Or the, the one that is the symbol of everything is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the, or one. the one. And because the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many, which is Star Trek three, is that those two, that contradiction... And that we hear, because when you first heard the needs of the many, you went, yes, that is irrefutable logic. And when they go off to find Spock and search for Spock and say, because the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many, you go, yes. In both cases, he was right. In both cases, they're right. And you just answered the question about the, the paradoxes between the two persuasive arguments in Metamorphosis and Who Mourns for Adonais. In both cases, he is right. Yeah. Because in this case, well, the needs of the many did outweigh the needs of the few, but the needs of the one was a very, very powerful one. Well, and one of the ways that we struggle in society is balancing the needs of the collective versus the needs of the individual. And we're seeing that through, it is a constant struggle. We're seeing that today. I'm not going to name what they are, but in a lot of the conflicts, it is about the needs of the group versus the needs of the individual. And there are times where we have to say, no, the needs of the individual are paramount. Even though it's going to cause a lot of trouble, you can't force that one person to do that thing. But I, I agree and, with you. And there are other times where we go, no, you know what? You're going to have to give up a little bit of your freedom, a little bit of your wealth, your rights, in order to for the greater good. And they're both true. And you know? in this case, I mean, you just pointed out in the clearest possible way 
what the paradox of both of those classic lines from Trek Two and Trek Three, why the argument in Metamorphosis fits, and why this argument also fits. Um, the other thing I think about this scene is I think, on some level, this scene is Edith Keeler must die. The fate of the Enterprise deter- is based on you hurting and essentially killing the person that you love. Okay. Mind blown. You are right. You are right. I never saw it that way because I just didn't see Palamas as a character that Because you're I, not as involved in her love story. Right, But right. there's no question that she loves it. Also, she's not Kirk. She's not she's this not Kirk. character we've yeah. been following for every episode. But you are right. This is Kirk saying, do as your heart tells you to do. And, we and all, we're all 428 slaves. will die who did not die before. Yeah. Yep, yep, you're right. Lieutenant, you have your orders and your duty. Yes, sir. My orders and my duty. You're absolutely right. Holy yep. cow, Steve. Well, that what's so fun, and this is why doing the show with you is so fun, is there are these episodes that I've watched a million times, and I go, damn, there's more here. You know? We need to teach a course on this. <laughs> we are. Yes, we do. <laughs> we are. It's called Enterprise Incidents. Yeah. But, okay, ladies and gentlemen, listening, that is an excellent, uh, uh, so much to, to, to ask you what you think of this scene between Kirk and Paul Amos. Is Kirk right to show the situation and really really lay it out to, to Paul Amos the way he did? And do you think it's fair to compare Kirk's speech to Paul Amos to Spock's speech to Kirk in City on the Edge of Forever? Go over to our Facebook page and let us know. Enterprise to Captain Kirk. Come in, Captain. Kirk here. Spock here, Captain. We've pinpointed a power source on the planet's surface which seems to have something to do with the force field. Is there a structure of some sort near you? There is indeed, Mr. Spock. And he says we can punch through to create some openings to fire some phasers. Have Mr. Sulu lock all phaser banks onto the structure. Fire on my order only and cut it fine. We'll be standing nearby. And Spock's like, maybe don't stand so nearby. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. I must say, Apollo, the way you ape human behavior is remarkable. The word ape is key. Oh, Oh, yeah. Because that is that is insulting. I mean, that is a... uh, and it's from a superior position, you say, ape. But there are some other things I must know. Your evolutionary patterns and your social development. And he is just like, huh? What are you doing? We were just all We just romantic. had sex. We just did a thing. <laughs> I've never encountered a specimen like you before. A specimen, right. Yeah. I'm a scientist. <laughs> uh, Leslie Parrish is great in this scene. Well, that's what I said. I thought she was stiff in the beginning, and I think here she's really good. I am Apollo. I've chosen you. Well, I'm sure that's very flattering, but I must get on with my work now. I, I think that she redeems herself in a way that's much more effective than MacGyver's. 100%. In, uh, in Spacey. Mm-hmm. I think MacGyver's, as we said in that, she's a troubling character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas I don't think Palamas is. <sighs> well, surely you know I've only been studying you. Studying me? <laughs> and he says, I don't believe it. You love me. And you know what? He's right. Yeah, she is lying. He yeah. shouldn't believe this. Right, she, she does, she love, does him. love him. Also, by the way, one of the things that's really interesting is if you pay attention to how much reverb they put on Apollo's voice is really key. In the beginning of the scene, when they're just talking, not a lot of reverb, and then when he says, "I don't believe it," you love me, 
That gets more reverb. He's becoming more the god again. Yeah, actually, it's a really good point. Like when he says to Kirk in the, at the end of Act 1, let the lesson begin, welcome to Olympus, there's a lot of reverb because he's pissed. Yeah. And this next line, man, this is not cool to say to someone you just had sex with. Love you? Illogical. I'm not some simple shepherdess you can awe. Well, I could no more love you than I could love a new species of bacteria. Ouch. Dude. Ouch. I mean, like, she doesn't just reject him. She stabs him in the back and kind of twirls the knife around a little bit while it's still in his back. And he gets mad and we start to get like a storm and he says, I forbid you to go. I order you to stay. Yeah. And she says to him, is that the secret of your power over women? The thunderbolts you throw? Double ouch. That's a great line. Mm. It's a really great line. And what's funny, the note I wrote here is this is actually worse than letting Edith Keeler die. Because Kirk didn't push her in front of a car. This is right. attacking the person that she loves. But that's how, You're right. Kirk just kind of... He just had to do nothing, and he had to stop Bones. Yeah, he didn't kind of do anything. He had to stop Bones. That was yeah. a big deal. Um, but you're right. He, he doesn't throw her in front of the car. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the storm is starting, and there's lightning. By the way, this totally made me think of what's Opera Doc when Bugs Bunny... When, when, uh, oh, when Elmer Fudd is creating blow. lightning. Southwinds blow. <laughs> yeah. Smog! Smog! Exactly. <laughs> what's Opera Doc? Um, Spock is picking up on the storm that's happening, and Kirk says, fire on my signal. And we see her just getting destroyed in this storm. So on the set, on stage 10, while this was being filmed, you know, the lights came down, the, the lightning effects are going on, and, and uh, Leslie Parrish is desperately trying to hold her, her glued-on gown in place. And we see that Apollo has become like this, uh, this giant image. Yeah. And is closing in on her with the lightning and the thunder going on and the wind. Now, this scene was referred to by the writers and the producers as the rape of the wind scene. And it was filmed on day seven of the Mm -hmm. production of this episode. The rape of the wind. So maybe. It's not good what she's going through. Definitely not. But there's something that is revealed at the end of this deleted scene. Mm. And I'm not sure if that happened in the scene at the end of Act 3 or if it happened at this moment now, but I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. Mr. Spock, fire those phasers. Well, he's still standing right at the thing. Yeah, okay, Captain, you're too close. It, it, fire those phasers. Well, but he stops to say it. Like, why is he not? It's just dramatic. It's just it's like, why don't you move away a little quicker? Like, what's <laughs> the, why are you stopping? He's just being Shatner dramatic um, for the camera. Fun but he says, great. He says, to fire those phasers. All phaser banks, fire. Then, then you hear that great Enterprise fanfare from, from Gerald Freed, mm-hmm. and the Enterprise is firing the phasers on the temple. Yep. And Apollo appears. Firing his lightning bolts at the Enterprise. The Enterprise is keeping those phasers yeah. on fire, and the temple starts to glow. It is starting to to uh, to buckle under the pressure of the power of the Starship Enterprise. And Apollamus appears, and she is completely Just disheveled. Wrecked, yeah. Like she looks like she was literally, for lack of a better word here, going to the title of the scene that just came before it, raped by Apollo. And Scotty goes to uh, help her. Apollo is doing everything he can to fire his lightning bolts. And that last stop, it goes. 
it is such an amazing scene. The acting of Michael Forrest, the direction by by Mark Daniels, and of course the the score by Gerald Freed. It is for 1967 on television. This is really top of the line stuff, and it still is in the 21st century. Um, it's brutal. It, it is a re- everything is kind of coming together, and the moment of sadness after the temple is destroyed is just brutal. I would have cherished you, cared for you. I would have loved you as a father loves his children. Do you think he means this? Do you think he would have behaved that way? That was his plan. I think he would have. I think he thinks that he would have done that. The problem with the paternal stance is if the father figure knows everything that his kids need, then he would, but he doesn't. But Michael Forrest in his delivery, yeah, you know, walking through the rubble of where his temple used to be after being no match for the Enterprise, ultimately. Again, the range of Michael Forrest to see him so beaten and defeated. You, you, you talked about one of the gods standing in front of the wind until only, only the wind remained. Hmm. You know, and we're, we're about to see we're about to see that played us played out. Paul saying, I would have cherished you. It's so sad. Yeah. And Kirk saying, we've outgrown you. 5,000 years ago, the people around the Mediterranean outgrew the gods. So you can imagine right. that in the 23rd century, they've outgrown them even more. And this was a lesson that, that Apollo just did not even consider. But do you think Kirk went too far? You know, we talked in other episodes, Steve, where where you think that Kirk went too far, like uh, obviously a taste of, of Armageddon. He went too far. Did he go too far in this episode? I think there were pathways that weren't explored that might have helped. But I also think, I mean, this is, it goes to like, the Enterprise is clearly under threat. This is a super powerful guy. This was the only way they could get out. But maybe there was another pathway earlier somewhere. The, the reason I asked that yeah. is because in Devil in the Dark, the Horda was the last of its kind. Right. Okay. And so is Apollo. So is Apollo. And the yeah. man trapped, the, the salt vampire of uh, M113, yeah. was the last of its kind. Apollo is the last of its kind. But Apollo has had time with, with people on Earth. This is a direct threat to the Enterprise. What he is proposing is absolutely slavery. And they have to defend themselves. So in this case, I think Kirk is absolutely 100% warranted. He absolutely did the right thing. This was his only choice uh, uh, under the circumstances. What what choice did he have? Like I said, I think there were pathways that maybe could have taken, if Apollo could be reasonable at all, which maybe he can't be. Um, But they didn't try to reason with him, really. And the the examples you give are excellent, because I think in Devil in the Dark— they come up with a, a compromise that actually benefits everybody. Exactly. And in Man Trap, one of the things we said whenever, a long time ago when we did that episode, <laughs> was, man, if only they could say, listen, we got plenty of salt. Like, let's work out a deal. You don't actually have to kill people, and you can live and get lots of salt, and it will be fine. And that episode would have probably played out that way if it if was you produced Jinkun. later. Is that, it, I don't actually think that being a shepherd and... Uh, bringing tributes to a god and wandering around in a pastoral setting is slavery unless you don't want to do it. If you don't want to do it, it's slavery. I wish they could have said, listen, Apollo, we got these missions. We got a lot of stuff we got to do. But there are a whole bunch of people like there are these people uh, in this side of paradise 
that they wanted an, an agricultural pastoral setting. There are a whole bunch of people that would love to come out here and worship you and farm, and we could and they could come visit you. It could be a vacation planet, and you could get some worshipers, and you could hang out with people, <laughs> yeah. and it would all be great. Yeah. But we can't stay here right now. Right. Well, right. even, you know what, Lieutenant Paloma, she can stay with you. And you could hang out and you could have little God babies. And then and we'll maybe bring some other people and it'll all be cool. But they didn't do that. But the, what's haunting about this episode is the way that when Apollo grows to giant form, like he did at the end of Act mm-hmm. 1, uh, his temple destroyed. Zeus, Hermes, Hera, you were right. And the way he says, take me. Take me. Echoes and he disappears. What does that remind you of? It's Charlie X. It's Charlie X. I want to stay, 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 stay. But it is still just as haunting. This mm-hmm. is a, it's a sad episode. I wish we hadn't had to do this. So do I. They gave us so much. The way they began the golden age. Would it have hurt us, I wonder? Just to have gathered a few laurel leaves. That is the end of the episode that we saw. Oh, okay. That is not the end of the episode that was filmed. And all of the versions of this story, from concept to final draft, there is a scene that is included in the script, and it was filmed, and it was ultimately dropped by NBC censors who felt very nervous about the inclusion of the scene. For many years, it was assumed that the scene was not shot because the scene is included in the James Blish adaptation Mm -hmm. of Who Mourns for Outer Nyes that appeared in the book Star Trek VII. But the Roddenberry Vault, which is a Blu-ray documentary series that came out in 2006, that is deleted scenes... You can see that they did actually film this scene. McCoy comes on the bridge and says to Kirk and Spock, I've seen a lot of strange things in my life, but Lieutenant Palamas became a little ill at breakfast this morning. I'm paraphrasing. This is Hmm. not exactly what he says. And we all know what it means when any woman is sick in the morning in an episode of television. She's pregnant. She's pregnant. She is pregnant with Apollo's baby. Wow. The scene was filmed. You can find the scene on the Roddenberry Vault Blu-ray, or part of the scene, the Spock uh, camera. And there is a book that came out a couple years ago still called Star Trek Lost Scenes that has like photos hmm. from this deleted scene. So they actually did film it, but they dropped it. And I got to say, uh, that's a shame. Because that would have been, talk about provocative, for 1967. I, I'm why sure that's dropped. why it wasn't on the, I'm sure that's why they didn't put, um, broadcast it. But, you know, Palamas had a kid. It was Apollo's baby. Now, when was it conceived is the question. Like, we, it is, we're not assuming anything. The fact is that the scene was filmed, it was in the script. Right. They had sex. Pregnant. They had sex. At least once, maybe twice. Maybe twice. One, or maybe, you know, twice, maybe three times. Because at the you know at the end of each uh, 
you know, sure. at, you know, okay, there's yeah. two scenes between Apollo and Paul that end with a kiss that could have gone further. Right. So any one of those, they could have followed that up with, with, with them having sex. But there was also the rape of the wind scene. Oh. So did Apollo actually rape Paul at that moment? And, is, and that's when, that's when she was, that the baby was conceived. Oh. So I don't know the answer to this. Curious to know what all of our listeners think. Uh, when do you think Apollo's baby was conceived throughout the course, the intercourse, <laughs> <laughs> in <laughs> Who Mourns for Adonis? Head to our Facebook page and let us know. And here's the other question. Do you think it was right for NBC to drop this crucial code of scene from Who Mourns for Adonis? Head to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, and let us know what you would have thought about the scene being included in the final episode. So um, you know how we've talked about how much the things we've learned about these episodes has enhanced our viewing experience and made them deeper and more interesting. Yep. This is a case, the knowledge that the scene was called rape of the wind where I'm put, where I don't want that in my brain. Yeah. I think that makes the episode worse. I think it's terrible. I think it damages what I think about the character of Apollo, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, because I am sympathetic with him. Um, yeah. So I'm going to, um, pretend I don't know that. Okay. Well, you know what, again, that this is a speculation. I'm not saying right. that, that if the, they were, the writers and the producers refer to it during right. filming as rape of the wind, but that doesn't mean that she was raped. Right. That's just what we're well, alluding and, to. And, and it's we also, weren't nearly we're not, so sensitive about some of these words then as we are today. Right. Sure. And well, that's that's also a very good point. So I actually think the baby was conceived at the end of the uh, third act. That's when I would think uh, too. because when. When, when it, he says you'll be the mother of gods. You'll be the mother of gods. And when Paul Amos comes back with the big smile on her face yeah. and Sky says what happened to her, I think all, it all points to like they yeah. did. That's when they had sex and that's when the baby was conceived. But I actually think that this episode, like so many others we discussed, Steve, has gone way up in my estimation. And I always held it in high regard anyway. I think it's a great episode. Uh, again, just it's so provocative. It's so provocative. Uh, and even though we've linked it to other episodes that I never thought to link them to before, right. I still think it is a superior top-tier episode. And it is one that Mark Daniels, who directed it, hailed as his favorite Star Trek episode oh, wow. of all the ones that he directed, saying it all came together so well. Fred Steiner, who composed the score, said, quote, it's my favorite score and I think one of the very best episodes of Star Trek. It has a little bit of everything. And there are some moments that I'm very proud of, particularly where I developed Captain Kirk's theme with a duet for the French horn. Hmm. Walter Koenig said, quote, Michael Forrest is a terrific actor. He was actually perfect in that role. Great presence and great resonance. So you believe the godlike figure, but what made it for me was the vulnerability of that character. Even though he's this massive man that used his, that's used to giving orders, he is tragically needy. I think that's yeah. absolutely accurate. Leslie Parrish, played Lieutenant Palama, says, Whenever I watch it, I go right back to the whole thing again and cry my way through it. I relive it. My impression is that it's one piece that I am very, very proud of. Of all the work I did, that is outstanding because it is rooted in something in which I believe so deeply. Michael Forrest, the last word comes from Apollo himself. That show has given me more mileage than any show I ever did. 
And I did some pretty good films over the years. But people ask me what I'm most recognized for, and I say it has to be Star Trek. I'll tell you my thoughts. I have, a bu- I have kind of a bunch of different thoughts. The first one is I think this is the first true Star Trek team episode where everybody is involved. Uhura's doing some work. Sulu's doing work. Chekhov is obviously doing things. There, it's, not, it's not a big three episode. It's a team episode. With Kirk still being the center of the team, of course. And Spock shines. McCoy has things to do. Like, they're all working together. That's the first thing. I, I, I agree with you. I think, I think Friday's Child saw... saw Some of it. The, uh, uh, you know, definitely had a representation of that. But this is a, a more fully realized yeah. depiction of that. The one weakness is the one that we've already talked about, which is Scotty's character. It's just like... They're, they, it, it's, they just lost what I love about Scotty. Yeah, like, you know? I just... I lost... I lost... First, I, I understand Scotty's... You know, he's a lonely guy and completely lovesick over Poamas, but he just goes a little too far with it. Well, and this does the thing that Star Trek does so well of not really having a bad guy, is that in the end, we yes, he's our antagonist. Yes, we have to fight against him, but we also like him on some levels and feel really bad for him yeah. at the end. Yeah, really, there's a lot of empathy for Apollo. Yeah, uh, yeah and, I, and I think the ideas of, well, what is the nature of a god? What is a god? What does a god need from us, and what do we need from a god? And, mm-hmm. of course, and the difference, as you pointed out, of the difference between a god and god, with a capital G. Mm-hmm. And it has A, have we now said that the Greek myths are true? Is that canon? And B, have we said that the Federation believes in a monotheistic religion? And that is and one of the, and they're both sort of, odd ones in terms of canon for that me. it's it's really really something I, I you know what we would love to hear your thoughts about this episode how it how it resonates especially after this conversation but uh steve where can people find you um well they can find me at sr morris on twitter at sr morris one on instagram they can find the show at enter incidents on twitter enterprise incidents on instagram and of course the best way to find the show is to subscribe because then you don't have to find it it finds you Ooh, so, imagine that yeah so if you go to apple Podcasts, you can hit subscribe there but you could also do it on spotify you can go to youtube on apple Podcasts. as we say every time please leave a review if you haven't done so already and i can tell by the numbers that there are a few thousand of you who haven't uh, we would love you to leave those reviews um, and if you leave your comments on YouTube. It's always fun to interact with you there. And if you want to listen to my other show, The Cinephiles, and maybe you want to hear shows that have to do with gods and religion, well, you might want to first of all start off with Raiders of Lost Ark and The oh, Last Crusade. That's a good one. You could go to Amadeus, which continues to speculate about the nature of God. If you have a sense of humor about religion and you can deal with some. Maybe some sarcastic takes on religion. There is no better film than Monty Python's The Life of Brian. Um, and, and a more, uh, let's say, respectful version might be Ben-Hur. Uh, the <laughs> Seventh Seal, Ingmar Bergman's mo- uh, film, speculates on the meaning of life and God and death. And you know what my favorite film that has uh, a God in it is? Carl Reiner's O. God. Oh. One of my absolutely favorite movies. Was that 1977 or 77? Oh, 77. Yeah, Yeah. Bob Denver. I I remember seeing that movie when I was a little kid. It's so good. Yeah. We watched it for the show last year and I'm like, oh my God, this movie is so wise and so smart and funny 
It's a really good film. Yeah, it's got everything. It definitely yeah. does. Scott, how would people find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And like Steve said, please subscribe, you know, whether wherever you're able to listen to Enterprise Incidents. And very important, we, we are so grateful for all the great feedback that we've gotten from all of you on Enterprise Incidents. And it's been really, really amazing feedback. We're so very, very proud of the show. We just would love for more people to hear it. So if there's anything you can do to help us out in that respect, please do so by sharing Enterprise Incidents with as many people as you can. Don't assume that they already know about the show. Please share it with them. And uh, whether they are the diehard fans of the original series, more casual Star Trek fans who maybe have kind of dabbled in TOS, but please share the show. But what I want to share with you is a, 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 a moment that I'm, Steve, I know you're going to be just as excited for, which is the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. When we first talked about doing this, this podcast, I remember thinking, wow, there are some really, really great episodes that we're going to do our deep dives on, like absolutely iconic, great episodes that are among the very, 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 very best of Star Trek, but I feel like, man, we're we're so far from that. We got to start, like, you know, with like, you know, we got to do Muds women. women. We got to do Miri. You know, we got a lot to get to before we get to those really great ones. Well, that time has come again after City on the Edge of Forever. That was a big one. This next one is also a biggie. On the next episode of Enterprise Incidents, we go to Vulcan for the very first time. We are doing. A mock time. Cue that music right now. <laughs> Very excited for the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. Please join us. And until then, keep going bold. <laughs>